You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming down this morning. Welcome to M Pavilion 2019, designed by Glenn Merkett AO. My name's Felix Garner Davis. I'm one of the M curators this year. Um, Firstly, before we kick off, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet this morning. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boon Wurrung, one of the five major language groups of the greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. As you guys are probably aware, this event's one of 400 events held here across the M Pavilion season. And you can find out more about the program at mpavilion.org. Just look through the events, and there's a leaflet at the kiosk if you're not already aware of that. We're delighted to have a range of excellent speakers join us for the climate crisis relay this morning, and I'll pass over to Zadie to my right to start everything off. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, just tacking on to what Felix has been saying, thank you all so much for coming, and thank you to our wonderful speakers. This program was developed and created by us, <laughs> the M Space curators. This is not all of us, there are more. But, um, and we're a group that was, that began, I think, in June of last year. So we've all been working together for a really long time and working on this project for a really long time. Um, and we're all, we're young curators. Um, and M Pavilion is working with young makers and curators and artists to develop a lot of projects this year, which is really incredible. Um, for all of us, I think, to be able to stretch our artistic muscles um, and to be able to work together and connect to each other and to the wider arts community through M Pavilion. Um, yeah, I think that's it <laughs> for M Curators. And again, thank you all so much for coming. It means a lot, and we've been working on this for so long. So, thank you. Um, my name's Jet. Um, so, like Zadie just said, we're a young bunch of people about 15 to 25 year olds. And because of that, for this event, we thought what issue is facing those in that age bracket the most. And then inevitably we came to the conclusion that it's climate change. And so because of that, today we wanted our um, M Relay to be focused on that and the climate crisis. Um, with the question of what do people most want to see happening in their field? And so because of that, we've assembled a group of diverse think thinkers scientists, artists, comedians, uh, to tackle that question. Um, and this talk is um, uh, supported and presented today by RACB, so we thank them for their generous support for this event. I'll just pass on to Lana now. Um, I just wanted to introduce Atlanta as our host. Um, so Atlanta's sitting here in the front and she'll be like MCing today's conversation. Um, she works in science as a communicator, storyteller um, and comedian and uh, holds a master's in public international health um, and has worked internationally in programs in Uganda, Ken Kenya, Cambodia and East Timor. Um, she also, in her comedic work, has put on shows um, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, including Parasite Hosts and Days of Our Hives, um, and is frequent on ABC uh, alongside Frankie News and ABC Radio. So she'll be leading today's conversation and just guiding us through so without further ado, have fun. <laughs> Thanks, team. 
Um, thank you for that lovely introduction and thank you to Elm Pavilion for making this amazing marathon event that we're doing today uh, happen. Um, before we go on, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional uh, owners of the country that we're on uh, and pay my respects to the Kulin Nations. Um, and it could not be a more relevant topic on the issue of, of the climate crisis and climate sustainability. And as a non-Indigenous Australian, uh, it's something I often reflect on how much each and every one of us can learn from the Aboriginal Australians here, teaching us about knowledge that's been passed down through tens and tens of thousands of years. Um, this is an amazing event, uh, <laughs> a part of a huge program and pavilion. Um, has anyone ever been part of a, a relay, a conversation relay like this before? Nope, this is brand new format to a lot of us. This is great. It's, it's really good to, to use new ideas and see how we can actually evolve the discussion about climate crisis over the next two and a half hours. And I expect each and every single one of you to be here for that entire two and a half hours. Um, uh, as mentioned, I'm uh, a public health nerd. I've had the opportunity to, to work in infectious diseases around the world and actually see how climate is impacting the movement and spread of diseases and putting stress on communities in various locations around the world. So there is no topic, there is no occupation untouched by the climate crisis. Uh, and when I, I heard we were going to have this conversation today, part of me was like, oh God. But the other part was like, we cannot, we cannot look away. Uh, and here we are in one of the most beautiful parks in, in Melbourne, but also with smoke in the air and checking the air quality is becoming something that each of us do on a daily basis that was not part of our childhoods growing up in Australia. Um, so for those who have not got their head entirely across the format today. It's a conversation relay. So that means each of us will be roughly addressing the question of what action would we like to see on the climate crisis. Each one of us is having a chance to put our uh, opinion forward as an interviewee and then we become the interviewer for the next person along. I'm not going to introduce everyone because they'll introduce themselves or be introduced by the person before them. But uh, I get the, uh, the privilege of kicking off with my own personal two cents on the climate crisis. So, um, <laughs> firstly, I'd like to say as a comedian, the climate crisis is terrible for business. Uh, there's not very many funny things about it. And I personally would like to see the climate crisis resolved so I can go back to writing jokes about what the deal with aeroplane food is and the difference between cats and dogs. You know, the really important stuff. Um, Less popular uh, among my opinions on the climate crisis is that I'm not convinced awareness raising is the key thing. And this, uh, I'm very happy for others to, to bat down this opinion as, as the conversation moves forward. But if we look back on some of the biggest threats to our health and safety uh, in the last hundred years, we don't wait until every last person is on board before action is taken. Um, I th I'm thinking about CFCs. Uh, that was, I don't doubt there was, there was public movement on the topic, but we saw CFCs banned around the world by a group of leaders signing the Montreal Protocol and getting on with it. Um, when uh, we've seen leaded petrol banned around the world, we've seen uh, immunization schedules 
eradicate or at least reduce some of the key um, infections and viruses when experts and scientists have informed policy and policies put in place by the appropriate people. Uh, the people, I think, in Australia who do not believe in the climate crisis now, I'm not convinced will ever believe in the climate crisis. Uh, if, they, uh, if their opinions were not based on evidence up until this point, the fire, and the fires have not changed people's opinions, I don't think they're going to shift. So I, I personally would like to see a shift away from focus on awareness raising and a focus on ensuring that policy, uh, the politicians and the experts are informing policy and that's being implemented without having to wait till every last person in Australia is on board. Very happy for someone to disagree with me. Um, what else do I think? <laughs> I think my, the thing I would like to see happen more than anything is the banning of donations to political parties. I, I don't think we can see a shift away from financial interests being represented by our political parties until each party is receiving uh, the same portion of funding for their political campaigns. Otherwise, we will just see the person with the largest purse strings determining what the key priorities are for each government moving forward. And I also, lastly, <laughs> to kick off this delightful Saturday morning, I'd like to see a federal body in place investigating corruption. We have federal body, we have bodies investigating corruption at the state level. Even local councils are under greater levels of scrutiny than some of the federal uh, actions we've seen in the last six months. I think when we can see Bruce Pascoe's cultural identity called into investigation by the AFP, but we don't see significant changes after sporting clubs in marginal electorates are funded, <laughs> something's wrong. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. So that's my, <laughs> my opinions to kick off uh, our marathon today. Um, I would like to introduce our very first interviewee today. Um, could you please welcome up to the stage Charity Edwards. Uh, as Charity comes up, I'll, I'll just read out a bit of Charity's bio. Uh, now, Charity's a lecturer, urban researcher and registered architect with 15 years experience. <laughs> you have to sit here and, and deal with me introducing and talking about how great you are. <laughs> um, Charity is the co-founder of the Afterlives of City Research Collective, which brings together architecture, astrophysics, speculative fiction and art to create new futures in space. Her research uh, explores the uneven and more than human impacts of urbanization at the scale of the planet and, is, and Charity is currently undertaking a PhD in the increasing urbanization of the Southern Ocean via autonomous underwater technologies, which is not something I've seen on anyone else's CV. So, yeah, thank you for joining us this morning. No worries, just the standard. Yeah, right, just the standard. <laughs> Everyone's interested in that, right? Yeah, okay. well, I am now. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, do you want a big question to start or a little question? I was going to respond yeah. to some of your provocations. Yeah, go on. Okay. I'm going to look at my phone, but that's just because I'm keeping time, not because cool. I'm checking Instagram. Good, good, because I'll go off on tangents. Like, that's just what I do. Great. Um, but 
Some of the things that you were saying just earlier, I think, resonate. I think that's the term that we all use, yep. resonate quite strongly <laughs> with me. Um, this idea of the things that you actually have trouble with in terms of the climate crisis. And I have a big amount of trouble with the term crisis. Um, and hopefully, like, in a good way though, right? Um, I don't deny that there is something very, very bad happening all over the planet. Uh, but I remember reading just recently something on Twitter, and sorry to bring that up so early, <laughs> um, that basically said, you know, climate emergency is just white people code for, oh, it's happening to us now. Um, and I know it's completely white people to be unable to name the person of colour who actually wrote that and be able to cite their work, and I apologise for that. But I do think this idea of um, it being a crisis, it being something recent, it being something that's come out of nowhere is like tremendous uh, willful blindness. Um, so yeah, so I know this whole thing is about the climate crisis and I'm sorry to be the first person up and just go, I don't believe it's a crisis. I think it's been happening for a very long time. Um, and what we are seeing is nothing unexpected or unpredictable, but the, the very well thought out and carefully argued over the last 50 years collection of processes that every scientist has been trying to explain to us with increasing alarm. Does it being, so I, I, and I think that's an excellent reflection, um, would you, is, crisis, is there a different word that you would use other than crisis or, or are you just sort of focusing on the fact that it didn't start yesterday, it's, yeah, it's oh. been happening for a long time? I just worry that the language we use is so dispassionate mm -hmm. in a way, right? You know, we're, we're seeking to categorise it um, but the, the, the truth of the matter is it's so overwhelming, right? It's not simply the matter of banning CFCs and the Montreal Protocol. I mean, I can't speak to immunisation, I can't speak to those sorts of processes, but I know a little bit about treaty making and international law <sighs> because of oceans and planets and stuff. Um, and the Montreal Protocol was achieved, right? And that's great, that was really good, but that was able to be done because there was a ready alternative to CFCs that could be employed. It was one single thing that we were going to replace. Um, and it didn't fundamentally disrupt, I guess, the worldview of the neoliberal states that we all live under, right? So this, is, this crisis is not really a crisis of environment. It's a crisis of worldview and how we understand the planet and our kind of place within it and what we do with everything else that's there. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's really a lot for Saturday morning <laughs> and I've only had two coffees. It feels like it's a Negroni kind of conversation more really than anything else. It really does. So that is actually a, a great reflection on the Montreal Protocol. There was, there was a viable alternative ready to go. Is that what you think is limiting action on, on the climate crisis, the lack of viable alternatives? Uh, again, I'm going to complicate it and go back <laughs> a step. Sorry, this must be really awkward. Um, I think we all know how to solve the climate crisis, is my belief. It's like we buy less stuff, right? That's gonna significantly aid everyone. Mm. Uh, it's also gonna collapse the global economy. So we kind of, that's the difficult choice. No one is very comfortable with that. I'm not mm. comfortable with that. Mm. Like, <laughs> I've got to pay rent. <laughs> I've got shoes that I like to buy, right? These are very difficult things for us to reconcile internally, but also in our relations with other people and other beings and all the rest of it. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would do the first early Sunday morning call for the dismantling of capitalism. <laughs> I, I have no idea how else you solve this. It had to be done. Like, so, yeah. We got into 20 minutes before we... I mean, it's hard though, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I do feel that's a challenge, though, uh, the idea that the economy, like we talk about the economy as if it's a separate entity to ourselves. It's like we need to make sacrifices for the economy. It's like we are the economy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've wound it, we've entangled ourselves within it. So yeah. inherently we can't do any of these other things without fundamentally reconfiguring how those things work. Right? Absolutely. There's deep and uneven inequity yeah. across the planet and across different beings on the planet and all of that contributes to escalates and kind of transforms the problems that we face. So it, it's not that there's a lack of an alternative but that alter well the alternative is very large and sweeping and we're not ready for yeah, the kind yeah. of economic change that it's needs huge, to take place. right? I, cause I can remember, I mean, there'll be people in the audience who know David Harvey when I mentioned him and I saw him talk a couple of years ago. And, you know, it was great, yeah, 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 fine, all that kind of talk and everyone's very earnest and then asking questions at the end and I always go to this anecdote for a number of reasons. Someone asked, you know, uh, what do you want to see happen, right? And David Harvey gave this quite considered kind of response back to that question and then said, you know, fundamentally, of course, I want to see the downfall of capitalism <laughs> as much as the next person, but not right now <laughs> because my retirement is like wound up in it and my pension and everything else. And mm. it's the same. I'd love to see all that fall away, but I just won a really big grant a couple of weeks ago to do <laughs> some really good work elsewhere. So it's complicated. That is one of the key criticisms uh, the non-believers have of people uh, advocating for change, isn't it? They're like, uh -huh, well, you drive a car and you carry a plane and you've got a job, so how dare you criticise the capitalist system? It's like... You breathe air. Yeah. How can you criticise the bad air? <laughs> well, you know. Of course. No, every change has come from people within the, the system that currently exists. Hmm. So... Back to your questions. Though. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've solved it. We can all go home now. Sorry. Um, you... So, uh, looking at your bio, you work... Uh, cross-culturally is a very big part of your work but yeah. and, and cross-disciplinary as well. You're working with, with speculative fiction writers, astrophysicists uh, and others. How, is that a key part of uh, what you think the solution should be moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to add to that is all that kind of work makes you recognise and realise how important it is to work with others. So... Um, the work that I do is very much embedded in a collective, a research collective where we share a lot of these interests and some skills but also bring really diverse things to it. So, mm. um, yes, so there is astrophysics and writing about speculative fiction and interests in robots and machines and living in strange remote territories and that all comes together. Um, and we do work uh, with my colleagues and I in regional Victoria, in the Asia Pacific, in cities as well. We put on film festivals and repair buildings and create kind of maker spaces and we're very much interested in how you work together and mm. how through working together you are doing care. Yeah, I think that's, that's critical and... I'm always fascinated how different disciplines measure success as well. So um, I've worked with engineers for many years uh, and they were looking at technologies that would reduce um, smoke for people cooking indoors with, with, with kerosene or with, um, with uh, other, other sources. And an engineer's measure of success is, uh, is there a reduced amount of smoke coming from it? And um, a public health practitioner's measure of success is can I see a reduction in the number of respiratory infections in, um, in the population? And, uh, and a doctor's um, 
measure of success is how many people are uh, turning up to the health centre with infections. And a community worker's measure of success is, are people using the technology? Are we actually seeing people buy it? If, if I drop into someone's house, are they using that technology? And every single one of those measures is correct, but none of them are the full picture. So and an architect would go, why aren't we going outside and all cooking together <laughs> at a beautiful table? Right? <laughs> exactly. So no, no solution, yeah. just inventing a new problem. Absolutely. <laughs> so we have a lot to learn from other people. You mentioned urbanisation and that's a key part of your work. Yeah. Um, urbanisation is a word I'd say a lot of us have um, negative associations with, the idea of cities sort of expanding and mm. consuming our arable land and um, our environments. Is that an accurate reflection of how you see urbanisation? Uh, it's a really tricky term, right? It, it was before I started my PhD and now it's just a lot worse <laughs> through doing much reading and research. So I tend to look at the way things are urbanising, yeah, like as a verb, uh -huh. rather than thinking about building more bits of cities or objects. And where I particularly look at is in the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, and more and more in the Southern Ocean and really remote areas of ocean. So they're processes mostly that I'm looking at. So rather than building, you know, new islands in the South China Sea, although that is also a very big problem, um, things like over-harvesting, the ways in which mineral uh, resource speculation is carried out, the kind of convergence between scientific research and corporate interests in uh, spaces that are beyond national jurisdiction, so things which are occurring in very remote and very opaque, like literally opaque places mm. on the planet. Um, and there's a lot of that going on in the ocean. Okay. And we don't think of it because we can't see it. And also because it's a space which is like absolutely unsuited to human control. Right. And so it goes unseen, yeah. out of sight, out of mind. Absolutely. Do you think we need to dis uncouple the idea of urbanising with expansion necessarily? Uh, well, it happens kind of, there are many different forms. It expands, it contracts, it's completely variable. That's yeah. the thing. Um, I think one of the things we do have to recognise is that the, the urban is not just in the thing that we can look at and point at and say that's the city, right? It extends well beyond mm. into hinterlands, into remote areas, into forests, into other landscapes. And much of those spaces are made use of in order to support the thing here that mm. we all, most of us live in. So... There's always a relationship between those things. Okay. Hmm. That's a lot of great thoughts. I'm going to end our uh, interview there. Charity, do you want to inter introduce our next interviewee? I was going to say, Stuart, please come up here. <laughs> but then I'm also going to ask Stuart to introduce himself. I love it. <laughs> Time-honoured kind of practice of an ill-prepared interviewer. <laughs> that was perfect. What are you talking about? Segway. Okay. Uh over to me then. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Stuart Atherett. I work with the RACV, um, which is a pretty big brand in this state. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of us. Um, your dad probably told you to get roadside assist when you got your driver's license or something like that. So I'm coming from the public policy team at RACV. So we, we are an advocate for change in Victoria. And we've been doing this for quite a long time, 117 years. Um, and as our membership has grown and changed over time, our advocacy for them has, has shifted to reflect their needs. And 
I think that's really central to this discussion um, in terms of the climate, um, climate change, the environment um, sustainability being sharply in focus for our community. And for us to be a really credible advocate for our community, uh, we need to recognise that. And we kind of need to bake that into what we're talking about, what we're lobbying for. That's very high level, but uh, does that give yeah, you a yeah, sense? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Because I think this can kind of run on a conversation about those links and those tensions between cities, between transport, between uh, advocacy, right? Sure. So I think, I mean, I gave you like a pre-warning about this question that yes. I was going to ask. Yep. Um, and I think it's it's interesting to both of us, like a lot of my work is to do with cities and the urban as well. So the cities are often kind of described as engines of change, right? Yep. And they're seen as this uh, great hope uh, amongst a kind of recalcitrant state and federal governments really delaying any kind of action on climate change. Cities are seen as maybe the generators and experimenters of different kind of policies sure. and ways in which to work to respond to these impacts, but we also know, right, that cities can be incredibly conservative. Mm -hmm. yep. They can consolidate power, they can try to grow wealth exponentially, and they can be very resistant to disruption of yep. business as usual. Yeah, you're right. So how then, in that kind of like terrible knot of contradictions, do we plan, right? What a question. <laughs> the, so the, the approach we're taking is um, very much around what, what we've got and what we're about to get. So we've got a city of 5 million people and that's projected to grow to about 9 million in the 2050s at some point. So that's fairly significant growth on re really any measure. Um, if you look at a, a city of 8 or 9 million today, that would be, that would be London. And thinking about the infrastructure needs of that scale population and that um, the intensity that that brings um, is a bit frightening yes. um, so the the need for change and the need to accelerate towards uh, a city that enables access not mm -hmm. just by these cars running around behind us but by all modes uh, that's really central to what we're talking about and we've we spoke before about livability and yeah. this this tag that, that Melbourne, really central Melbourne, has been given recently, which is the most livable city in the world. And if it's not us, it's Vancouver. And if it's not Vancouver, it's, what is it, Vienna or Zurich or something? It's never Mwilumba. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> right. So we kind of know about livability uh, from all these metrics that have been developed and applied to us. Um, but I don't think we've thought through how we safeguard that and how we enhance that going forward. So especially beyond the central five kilometres of Melbourne. So when it gets less walkable, when it gets mm -hmm. really hard to ride a bike, where public transport essentially falls off a cliff, doesn't exist, um, there's those types of things that are really important for this next phase of growth. And uh, Yeah, and do you see that as the focus, the beyond the charismatic centre? You yeah. know, what is actually happening out in, I don't want to say margins, because that's where most people live. Yep. Um, but it's ironic, right, that these are the spaces which are the most planned yeah. in Melbourne, all yep. those outer suburbs, mm -hmm. and are maybe the least livable. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of a damning critique. Of yeah. <laughs> I mean, I teach planning. That's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. No, you're not, you're not <laughs> wrong. So Melbourne goes, what is it, 100 kilometres east now? Um, Perth goes 150 kilometres north to south. Um, 
So we've got this, yeah, it's a huge dilemma that we're grappling with, the sort of competition for uh, profit on the city mm -hmm. fringe and the, the ask that we create these places that are livable and, as I said, walkable. Mm. Um, there's good things happening. Mm. Uh, so the state government have got a pilot project called the 20-Minute City that they've just rolled out over the last couple of years, which is very promising. Um, so looping back to RACV for a moment. Um, if we can orient our advocacy and our, as I said, we call it lobbying, around those little nuggets of gold that are out there, mm. uh, I'm pretty hopeful that things can be, can be better and can be good. And that's a big shift, right, from the idea that um, there's a big group lobbying with a, a kind of well-defined set of principles or outcomes at once to a group that starts to be more dispersed and starts to lobby on a number of different fronts and mm -hmm. maybe advocate at um, a local or a kind of more regional level yeah, sure. rather than just trying to hit up at the top. Is that what you yeah, see, yeah. Aris, if you don't, well, I mean, I should be asking, is that what you want to see? Yeah, well, it's kind of on all fronts, this conversation. So it, there's a federal conversation about uh, fuel excise, um, the need for sort of a national framework for transport pricing. So that's macro, huge. Mm -hmm. There's a state conversation daily about infrastructure spending. Um, are we building the right stuff for the right community? Um, so is public transport being invested in enough? No, it's not. Um, and then there's this hyper-local thing, which is mm. you know, local government and even uh, for nerds, the SA2 level of geography, which is really a postage stamp. You know? um, so how are we creating these communities? Um, how are we acknowledging their needs? So I think it's really hard for our little team of um, what, six of us to stretch mm. ourselves across each dynamic, but um, we kind of need to. Um, our members care about this at all of those three levels. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's super interesting. So, and, and I think this is probably a safe space for nerds. I'm just going to take yeah. a wild guess. Good point. <laughs> Thinking about this group yes. that's already here. So maybe um, if we drill down to that, that smaller level, right, yeah, sure. where it is difficult for yeah. a small group to do that, how do you, what do you think could support you to do that? To tap into them? Yeah, yeah. To work at that like smaller, hyper-local kind of level, how do you have to connect maybe with other groups or other organisations or how can we see that happening? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, I was in the US last year and on a transport innovation study tour. Mm. And in Portland especially, there, there was a real sense of diversity in the advocacy space. So mm. really specific um, niche mm. uh, areas of focus that are being kind of championed by individuals. Mm. So there, there's people that rock up to council meetings and lobby for a street redesign to look like X, Y, and Z, you know? And then there's the regional level that are talking about the same thing, but to a different audience. And then there's sort of, a, sort of ratchets up. And you could probably identify, you know, a dozen levels of advocate, okay? Uh, I don't think we've got that here. Mm. I don't, I've, it's, it's just not as mature for some reason. So I'd love to see that bubble up. Uh, I'd love to figure out our role in that yeah. and how we kind of foster this hyper-local conversation and then play it back into the, the treasurer. You know, that would be really interesting. So to me, that always sounds like an education 
problem? Like how do you actually learn how to do that advocacy, yeah. right? And, yeah, yeah. and other than seeing that occur in different cities around the world and being able to study it, you know, it seems to me that maybe you're talking about a different kind of planner, as you, you are yourself, right? that actually does something other than regulatory work, yep. that does actually engage in discussion, it's listening, it's a lot of communicating, it's a lot of trust building, yep. community capacity, yeah, all of that. Work. They are different things than what we're taught to planners yeah. like five to 10 years ago. Yeah, so I went through planning uh, 15 years ago and um, community engagement was really uh, central to that. Um, and then you graduate and you work for a, a, what, a private firm or a local council and um, it all distorts from what you learned, mm. you know. Um, so I think, yeah, going back to first principles and doing these things well is, yeah, it's kind of essential, I think, yeah. Um, one of the questions I also wanted to ask, and it's a sneaky one, right, because I got to kind of avoid it myself by talking about other things. Yep. Um, but I promise I can play into it as well, is okay. that the idea of you know what is the change that you would like to see happen to yep. me sounds kind of passive like okay. we're expecting it to come from elsewhere um maybe someone else is going to do it and yeah. make it happen wouldn't yeah. it be wonderful uh maybe we could tweak that a bit i recognize my own complicity in kind of abdicating that responsibility but think about what will we do to change that mm -hmm. you know to just flip that on its head what will you do to change that, and I can you, you can ask it of me too. Yeah, that's sure. rude not to offer that. I, I think we've got a we've got a really strong role in asking others to do stuff. Okay, mm -hmm. so I think we I don't think that is being passive. I think we need to exist to, as I said, play back to the treasurer or the premier um, what people want and what is going to move the needle into the longer term. Um, Oh, so on a really tangible level, that would be things like the Melbourne Metro 2 project being recognised in some sort of capacity and being planned and then built. That would be great. Um, cycling infrastructure, I think we think that uh, the state has a really central role in that. Yeah. Um, so they're two things that haven't been committed to yet mm. um, on, a, on a reasonable level. So maybe it's about accountability. Yeah, how right. How do we, the asking is really important. Yeah. But then how do we ensure and how do we follow up? Yeah. And how do we, in a way, kind of police that the asking leads to something? Yeah, right. We had this conversation on Tuesday um, about our four year, three or four yearly cycle of uh, budget, sorry, election asks. So you'll hear about us a lot in the lead up to an election. Um, mm. And we don't want to go silent for two or three years. And then and start then go it again, again. Mm. because day one that a uh, new government is elected, they've you know they've got a new set of things that we asked of them, yep. and they may or may not have agreed to. So how do we keep that up through the cycle? Mm. Um, the last thing we want is yeah this two years of nothing before the electioneering kicks up again. So and then the flurry of promises. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right near the election, yeah. which we know. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, that might be time for... Good. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being our first uh, interviewee to interviewer Charity. So, uh, thank and thank you so much, Stuart. So I think Stuart stays and now Charity right. gets to go have her third coffee for the day. Can have a round of applause for Charity. Thank you. Thank you very much as well. Thank you. Pass this off. Now, yeah, leave the mic, I think, for... <laughs> Free mic for every person involved. Uh, now, our next speaker is Jade. Do you want to come on up? Do you, Stuart, are you going to introduce Jade or are we going to make Jade introduce herself? Hello. <laughs> Welcome. 
Thank you. Welcome to The Relay. Thank uh, you. Nice to be here. Why don't I get you to do it? <laughs> sure. All right. Um, so my name is Jade Sarita Arnott and I am the founder and creative director of a, um, fashion, a women's fashion brand called Arnstorff. Um, so, yeah, the... I guess the story of Arnstorff began in 2006. I studied fashion design at RMIT. Um, took sort of the usual um, path of a young designer at the time, wholesaled to sort of high-end boutiques, got some press, um, started showing at Sydney Fashion Week regularly. Um, I had studied um, sustainability at RMIT when it was sort of just in its first um, iterations of subjects and so I, I'd already been exposed to sort of the concepts around around that and had applied it you know as best as I could to the traditional model of um, a designer at the time so I, I had you know I had organic cotton pieces um, but I hadn't really redesigned the whole system of how we operated as a brand so you know, fast forward, I moved to New York, was working from there, um, sort of got fed up with just the constant cycle of the fashion industry and all of the problems that I saw associated with it. So pressed pause, took a few years off, um, kind of walked away, thought, you know, I didn't really want to be a part of the industry that was had, you know, human right issues, um, environmental impact issues, but then after having some time away, I decided that, you know, I could either be part of the change or, you know, just turn a blind eye to it. So I decided to sort of re-enter the industry and, yeah, that was the foundation of the next version of Arnstorff, which launched in 2017, which was based on um, a foundation of transparency, sustainability and ethical manufacture. So What an intro. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, it might have been a bit long. <laughs> no, that's great. So the, the ethical aspects of your work, uh, sort of that, sort of been very oriented around that mm -hmm. through your B Corp certification, just bringing that through to the climate crisis conversation. Mm -hmm. what, where are you at now with this? Well, I sort of feel like the, you know, there's a lot of um, links to the Rana Plaza collapse, which I'm not sure if everyone is familiar that isn't within the fashion industry, but that was the, um, big collapse of a factory in Bangladesh that killed, you know, over a thousand people. It was really like this turning point in the industry when people were like, okay, I can't ignore this anymore. This is in my face. This is, you know, things have to change. So I think um, in a way I really see, you know, this moment in time, like, like Charity said, you know, we've been warned 50 years prior, you know, it, you know we've known all of this has been coming. But I really feel with the bushfires, like it is on our doorstep and people are finally really, really waking up. And I think in a way I, I really see parallels with the Rana Plaza collapse that this is the moment where it's not going to be the same and, you know, things have to change. And, you know, obviously the human rights issue isn't completely solved, but there's a lot more awareness around it. There's fashion revolution, you know, there's a little... People are a little bit going away from fast fashion... So, um, but in terms, sorry, in terms of as a brand, um, we're, we're really about, um, in terms of like at, at the base level, we really look at raw materials and sourcing of those, you know, which 
fibres have the lowest impact, um, which things can be recycled. Sorry, there's a fly. Yeah. <laughs> Getting me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, long term, you know, I feel like we really need to move away from this linear economy into a circular economy. Got and it. that's really going to be the, the way forward. At the moment, you know, we can't, we're not in a position to do a perfect job of that. And so we've, we start in terms of being able to use the best materials available to us at the moment to produce locally, which has less um, of a carbon footprint. Um, there's more visibility over our supply chain, things like that. Um, but we are really, the next step for us is really looking at this circularity piece and how we can put those materials back into use yep. after the consumer has finished with the product. Right. Um, yeah. So at the moment, the limitations are that there isn't currently a recycling plant for fibres that we have access to yeah, right. in Australia. So, you know, there's other things where you can, there's take back programs. We, we, we offer free lifetime repairs on all our garments. Um, and we also offer free alterations because we see a barrier being when things don't fit properly or if they're damaged, that's, that doesn't keep it in circulation in people's closet. That's an easier way to discard it if it's just not quite right. So we really see things like that, redesigning the system. Yep. Um, there's other things that we, we do in a business sense is that we don't go on sale. So we're trying to phase out this idea of this sales culture of, you know, garments are released and three months later, they're no longer valuable. They're, they're not new, they're, so they're not as desirable. So um, how's, how's that going? So how, how is the Victorian market um, and the appetite for your products, these responsible, uh, sort of ethically sourced, sustainable products. What's the state of play at the moment here? We've had, we've seen like consistent growth. So we have two stores. We have one in Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. We have one in the Emporium. And we also have an online store. So uh, I think our consumers see it as quite refreshing. You know, we sort of, we put out... Um, emails instead of, you know, Black Friday sales, we'll, be, we'll send an email saying full price Friday and these are the reasons why. And so it also like um, gives our consumers a sense that their product is, is precious and valuable and that, you know, there's also, when you go out and buy something and then, then f at full price and the next week it's marked down, you sort of, you know, you, you don't feel as good about that piece. So... We kind of respect everyone that we pay the same price. We also have a core collection that's continuous, so it's a permanent collection. Um, so people know that if the pants wear out and they've got a suit, they can re replace them. They've still got the jacket in the same fabric. Um, and then we do, we treat our collections as, we have like a seasonal collection, which is a limited edition collection, so they just sell out. So yep. there's kind of that, um, that sense of um, collectability and that, that not everyone's going to have this piece. And so that that's sort of appealing yep. to people as well. Can I ask a transport nerd question sure. of you? So we think a lot about logistics and um, yes. how stuff gets to people. Mm -hmm. And I know that I do it. I click on my screen at home and then two, three days later something appears. Mm -hmm. And I need to do a better job of considering how it gets there. Mm -hmm. 
how are you as a supplier or yeah. as a business owner how are you thinking through that so we we offset it so it's carbon neutral um, with the courier that we use um, we also consider raw materials so we try to plan forward so that we don't need to use air freight so we're using sea freight which has lower emissions for garments to um, fabrics to get to us so yeah we're considering it that in that way we've also started this new um, thing on our website where you can collect from the store so that's like you can buy it online but you can um, select to have it to pick it up yourself so great yeah. so there's nothing passive about this because you're doing so much yourself which is kind of inspiring i think I hate to be the timekeeper, but I no. am the timekeeper. So, uh, and I hate to cut off this conversation because it's been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, both to Stuart Thanks, and Jane. Nice thank you, Stuart. <laughs> I have a hundred questions, but I'm going to hold on to them uh, at the end. And we will take any burning questions at the end. Uh, so that's a good uh, incentive to stick around. Uh, Jade, do you want to bring up our sure. next uh, interviewee? I'd like to introduce um, Chelsea Hickman. If Chelsea could please come up. Chelsea is also a fellow designer. So. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Nice Hi. Hi, everyone. Chelsea, do you want to start by telling everyone a little bit about your um, process and your practice? Yeah. So uh, I'm an emerging fashion designer and a, multidis a multidisciplinary visual artist. Um, my pro... Like... Uh, Sorry, I don't usually do like public kind of speaking like this. This is only the second time that I've sort of spoken publicly about my um, work and my relationship to sustainability. The first time was um, in my friend's bedroom for her podcast. So <laughs> I am well shaken already. right now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm here because I know some things about the fashion industry that I, that I really want to share with you about fashion sustainability. So yeah, emerging designer, multidisciplinary visual artist. I... Um, work mostly with uh, upcycling old garments, uh, found waste and fabric salvage from landfill. So that's what I'm using within my, within my kind of practice. Um, where, can I ask, where, <laughs> where do you source your um, garments from? Is it from op shops or is there like a, some sort of stream that garments get to you? Um, yeah, so I use old garments that are often given to me by my friends or people who know me. Um, yeah. Uh, some things that can't really be donated to charity stores. So, uh, you know, if an item has like a tear or a stain or it's missing a button, that's the kind of thing that can't really be donated to a charity store. So my friends will pass that stuff on to me. And I'm using that within my practice to create uh, both functional pieces and wearable art as well. So, yeah. And how do you um, sell your products? Like, what's the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, there, uh, is there... Yeah. Is it more of an artistic practice or is it, uh, is it a um, product that people can purchase from you? Yeah, yeah. I'm making products that are, like, uh, sellable. So I often just do... Like, I'm pretty small time, so I do markets and I sell online. Um, I've got a Depop. If anyone knows what that is, it's, like, an app um, where you can, like, buy buy clothes, it's kind of like Instagram. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm using to like sell at the moment. <laughs> and um, how long does it take you to, to recreate a garment or does it really just vary on each piece? Um, it varies from piece to piece. I like to make uh, collections, so 
you know, make like um, 10 outfits that are all roughly around the same theme. And then I'll present them in, um, in a way that uh, is not a typical sort of runway setting, which is usually, you know, what uh, designers do when they're presenting a collection. Um, they'll do something like Fashion Week or, you know, have a runway where it's like people walking back and forth. But I think um, I'm trying to abstract modes of presenting fashion because I think there should be a lot of change within the fashion industry and that goes down to the, you know, even the way designers are presenting their work I think should be um, something that changes because there's changes that should be made <laughs> within the fashion industry as well. I have a question actually for <laughs> both of you. Ah, oh, this is... I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, how has the response, I mean, is something you said at the beginning, Jade, which is, you know, you were trying to apply sustainable concepts in a pre-existing system uh, and the two of you are actually like, that's not going to be enough. We're actually going to have to go and change the system and, and the full process. What's the response been from the more mainstream fashion industry to what both of you are doing? Yeah, well, um, you know, how you were saying, Rana Plaza was like a huge, Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh was a huge uh, turning point for the fashion industry for ethical manufacturing. Um, but it sucks that I feel like there has to be some crazy major thing that happens like that for the des like fast fashion designers or for any designers to all of a sudden start taking um, f um, fashion sustainability seriously. So I, I wish that designers fast fashion designers especially, would um, be more active in um, intervening in the climate crisis and fashion responsibility in the, crisi in the climate crisis before some major event happens that, um, you know, changes people's minds about what they should be doing. I think sustainability as a topic has generally, you know, um, the wider mainstream commu community has, it's taken longer to catch up, but it's definitely in people's minds now um, and it's definitely what people are focusing on. But I think, it, yeah, it is still looked at in quite a traditional way in terms of materials um, and there's scope for the industry to see it as, you know, redesigning the systems and the way that the industry operates a little bit more. I think that we could definitely move to disrupt the system more yeah. to create... It does, it does feel like sustainability emerged maybe in uh, food produce and other sectors before it made it to fashion. And, um, of course, the challenge, I guess, you're, you're up against large-scale fast fashion designers who are selling Yeah, undercut, like, yeah, uh, on every level, like any other kind of design that yeah. can exist. Uh, fast fashion just um, is a real killer of, like, local manufacturing. And, um, and the gap between, well. you know, your $2 T-shirts that you can get and the genuine real costs yeah. and what it <laughs> takes people who are, are doing things ethically and sustainably, it, that, that gap is a lot larger, I would say, than, for example, the gap between um, coffee and tea and some of those other sectors that have, yeah, have gone yeah, forward. For sure. What is going to need to happen in order to sort of change that culture? Is it at the consumer level or is it somewhere else? I think it's transparency and that's partly why we decided to use our platform as an educational tool. So we list all our, what it costs in terms of labour, materials, logistics on our website for every product. And yeah. that's just a way to, to open people's eyes to, you know, walking down the street and seeing that $2 T-shirt and it actually costs you know, five times that to 
to sew it like mm. how mm. does how does that work yeah or so i saw <laughs> on your website that you even list the people who physically make the garments yeah. that you're then selling as well I so think i think that's, that's really admirable it's really important to sort of put people's names and faces to it so it's so that they can think there's you know there's a human aspect and a human cost to this mm. so mm -hmm. um, yeah. um for anyone who doesn't know as well when we're talking about fast fashion uh, we're talking about like really, really big companies that are producing garments, mass producing garments for very cheap. So yeah, you can think of, I'm gonna name names like Kmart, Big W, Cotton On, they're all companies that mass produce clothing and sell them for extremely cheap. So yeah, companies that are selling shirts for like $2, $5, there's, it's just not, f I don't see how it's physically possible that that can exist. Because to make a cotton t-shirt, um, Farming that amount of cotton actually takes, you know, around 2,000 litres of water to produce that much cotton. And that's just the raw fibre. Then that cotton has to be transported to a factory where it's um, woven into a yarn, where then it's woven into a fabric, and then the fabric is dyed. And after the fabric's dyed, it's going to another factory where it's being turned into a garment, and then, you know, the transportation from there to then the, the place where it's being sold to then the workers that are being paid to sell the garment... It, it's, not, it's not possible and we've known for like years and years now that it's just not sustainable that you can sell something for that cheap. So yeah, a change that I want to see in the industry, that's, I think there should be some pretty like hardline militant enforcement of like sustainability, <laughs> sustainability practices on fast fashion companies. But then, you know, having said that, that's going to make garments more expensive. So now we're adding a barrier of... Um, potentially leaving people behind who want to participate in fashion but then might not be able to afford it. But then having said that, <laughs> maybe if everyone's getting paid a fair wage along the way, people might be able to afford then to pay more for fashion. So that's my two cents. It's almost like it's a really <laughs> complex issue. <laughs> and I get an amen. Hear, <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty do complex. You, yeah. How do you think we can better educate consumers to these issues and and to see that, you know, that, you know, $5 t-shirt isn't mm. mm -hmm. value. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need to leave it there. <laughs> the Thank you so much, Jade and uh, Chelsea. Thank you. Uh, uh, give a round of applause to Jade as she leaves the stage. Thanks, Jade. Pleasure to meet you, Jade. <laughs> uh, next, we have Yandel coming up to join us. Hello. Yandel. Who wants to introduce Yandel? Yeah, I can introduce Yandel. Go for it. Yandel. Yandel. So, <laughs> so yeah, I even practiced before and now I'm sitting here. I'm like, what am I saying? Anyway. Um, so Yandel uh, is a visual artist, multidisciplinary as well. Works in like projection, uh, installation, um, like media, uh, and presents work often in public spaces as well. So Yandel, do you want to speak a bit more about your practice? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm a contemporary artist working in a very kind of um, spatial context. Um, my work um, uses moving image and video um, to create installations that are very immersive. So, um, I quite often create site responsive works that are for um, non-traditional public spaces, uh, non-traditional gallery spaces or in the public. So, um, yeah, creating quite um, 
um, immersive installations. My work, I suppose I could talk a little bit about the overall themes of my work. Um, yeah, because you work a lot in environmental issues yeah. as it is. Yeah. I think as an artist, I've always created work that is extremely um, personal. So, um, what is affecting me, I suppose? What is yeah. affecting me emotionally um, and what's around me? So, my work's always been about impermanence, whether that um, has been about kind of death and mortality and um, personal responses to dealing with death. And then that kind of has moved now around um, the impermanent nature of the world around us. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. <laughs> so, how do you think your uh, work? Well, well, the question for today is kind of like, what do you want to see changing towards the climate crisis? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose I can talk about personally how it's been extremely important for my work to connect to the viewer, connect emotionally to the viewer. So. I create um, immersive environments that are e extremely um, uh, kind of visceral and um, that connect in different senses, so visually and, um, and audio. Um, and also, as you mentioned before, um, working in a public space um, it's very important for me to connect to a broad audience. So being able to present work yeah. in a public context. Yeah, it feels like it's about accessibility as well. And like yeah. People have access to information about what's happening with the climate crisis. Creating public work, um, you know, gives people an opportunity to experience um, your way of um, approaching climate issues. Definitely. And I think, I mean, all, um, the, all the way back, uh, I think, 2010, I... St I uh, from 2010, I started creating work. Those flies are lovely. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I started creating work around themes to do with um, our overconsumptive behaviours and waste management and our effect on the natural environment with um, artworks, public artworks, like landfill was one of them and human yeah. effect. Um, and... These were things that were really affecting me. I could see this around me. Um, our, you know, our waste management, overconsumptive behaviours, um, our disrespect for the natural environment. Um, but there wasn't so much a conversation with those works around um, um, cl climate change or global warming as such. And it, more recently, you know, that has become um, a more and more a theme that, uh, you know, like uh, in the media and um, it's become more, uh, more of a, uh, a scary issue. Like, <laughs> yeah. just I so love, it just kind of happened like that. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. in the last, I don't know, what, four years or something, it's just like, bam. Yeah, it's become an issue that no one can ignore anymore. no well yeah really linking um really linking these problems that i was already investigating into how it's affecting you know global warming which then that's affecting our our world 
irreversibly. Um, and that's massive. So for me, as an artist, I embarked on um, a major um, a major solo exhibition called Shifting Surrounds. Yeah, the substation yeah. last year. Mm. So that was presented at the substation in, in last year um, and was a series of so, uh, six site-responsive installations. And I had been working on that exhibition for two years mm. as well. So these, you know, even... So that's two years from mid-last year. You know, there wasn't that much uh, for me, around me, and my conversations with my peers and, um, you know, things that were prevalent to me, there wasn't that much of a conversation around global warming and climate change as much as there was when I ended up presenting that exhibition. Yeah. Incredible yeah, sure. difference. Mm. But for me, I use art in a really... Um, even though it's talking about um, ideas around consumption rising sea levels, our effect on the natural environment or um, technological advancements, I feel like I'm creating these very... Um, these artworks that are a real... like a creative expression of these works. So it's allowing the viewer to have their own dialogue. I'm not force feeding them facts, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, Creating things that can be like interpreted yeah. in a certain way, yeah. depending on the person. Yeah, allowing the viewer, for starters, to be fully immersed by a work and yeah. have an emotional response, mm. then have a bit of a think about what it could mean and then come to their own conclusions um, and hopefully take those away. And that's, for me, that's a way that I like to work. I feel like it hits them hard emotionally but not necessarily fact, like, you know, force-feeding facts, um, yeah, even cool. though it is about... It is what it is. The, yeah, <laughs> even though all the works were, you know, are about, um, uh, you know, our, our effect as humans on the world and where the world, def you know, is going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I suppose, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, talking I about other artists... Um, what are some ways that you think uh, artists can engage more with that conversation about the climate crisis and environmental issues? Yeah. Hmm. Well, for me... Cause you're making really impactful work. Like, yeah, and also... What's some advice that you would give? Also, I think the main thing for me is... That, and the advice that I could probably give to other artists is making your work really accessible accessible um, can mean a lot of things. So that can mean creating public artwork, so yeah. it's um, accessible by, um, to a broad audience. Yeah. Maybe um, like uh, people are seeing it then who wouldn't normally engage with a gallery yeah. experience as well. Exactly. But also, I mean, the, also the works that are probably the most effective works that I've done have been... Um, have been works that aren't hard to understand. Yeah. So didactic, mm. quite didactic. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the um, most successful works I had in the public was called Human Effect and it was a, a plant life growing on, on a laneway wall, like beautiful um, rainforest-like plant life. And when you came close, 
each part of each plant would shrivel up and die. Um, and it was an interactive work. And that was so effective because it was aesthetically pleasing, it was beautiful, it drew you in, it drew everyone in that walked by. And then it was there was a clear message. Super yeah. clear. Yeah. <laughs> but it was but it was, yeah, such a talking point and such a um, such a successful work mm. because of that clear message. Yeah. And getting people to, like, physically engage with the work as well. They're not just, like, viewing it, but when they come close to it, like, the plant life died. Well, that's asking then the individual viewer that's affecting that. It's asking them to consider their individual, Mm. their individual, um, yeah, how, how they are affecting the world individually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. That seems like a theme that is sort of coming through our discussions. How do you reconnect with people's emotions and the humanity uh, and the people being affected by what's what's going on? Um, I'm timekeeping again. Uh, thank you both, Chelsea and Yandel, for a really good conversation. <laughs> Round of applause for Chelsea as she leaves the uh, stage. Thanks, everyone, for coming. <laughs> Uh, We're doing really well. We have clocked our first hour of this marathon event. Um, Stay hydrated. Uh, The bar is open for coffees and other things. Um, Thank you for sticking with us so far. Uh, I'd like to welcome our next person to the stage, Jane Morton. Please come on up. Hi, Jane. Um, I will just do a quick intro um, from your bio. Jane Morton helped bring the Extinction Rebellion to Australia. Um, she is a clinical psychologist and has been in semi-retirement for six years, focusing her efforts on campaigning a climate emergency. Yay, good job. And um, is the author of Don't Mention the Emergency. So you can... Um, Maybe I was hoping you could start by talking a little bit about Extinction Rebellion for people who don't know about the movement. Um, And then, yeah. Okay. Can I take a step back? Sorry. Of course. (laughs) You can. You can. Okay. So, because, yes, my work with Extinction Rebellion grows out of my work with climate emergency campaigning more generally. And I would just like to say that one of the most important things we can all do is always call it climate emergency and, sorry, not climate crisis. Al Gore started using the words climate crisis back in about 2005 and you can see how fast things didn't change from 2005. Um, Sometime after that, the fossil fuel industry influenced the Republicans to call it climate change, not global warming, because they knew that global warming sounded more alarming Whereas climate change, right, it's advertising the meme. The climate is always changing. Why should we have to worry about that? And yet you still see climate activists going around saying climate change, but look, even climate crisis is not going to really cut it. Um, So yeah, I wrote, don't mention the emergency, because this was in 2016 now, right, 11 years after Al Gore, um, 10 years after climate Um, scientists started saying it was an emergency back in about 2007. Um, There were still big environmental organisations being advised by messaging consultants not to say it's an emergency. We had climate scientists talking amongst themselves going, oh my God, are we going to buy land in New Zealand or in the south of Tasmania Um, because we're so scared what's happening but we'd better not tell anyone because people are just going to panic. 
worked out well, didn't it? Um, basically, you're not going to get emergency action unless you're prepared to say it's an emergency. You don't get people to evacuate a town because the fire's coming if you don't tell them the fire is coming. Yeah. So that's the emergency, right? Okay. Um, I just, in terms of that, I just might say one more thing too, sorry. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a very obedient interviewee. <laughs> Rebel. Rebel. Okay. Uh, so, um, look, how serious is this emergency, right? What scientists are saying right now is that it's an existential threat, okay? So, in an informal poll of people visiting my house, university educated, I asked them what's an existential threat. They said, oh, is it something to do with existentialism? No, it's not something to do with existentialism except in the sense that it's to do with existence. What scientists are now saying in their own hard-to-understand way is that the climate emergency is a threat to organised human society across the world. This is not just in poor countries, in Australia too. A threat to organised human society and a threat to human life. Not to mention, of course, nature. Natural life, yes, definitely an extinction risk we're in the midst of the sixth mass extinction now but like in a conversation in Australia it's often oh well you know there's going to be all these climate refugees how many can we take I mean no one really ever thinks we could be the climate refugees we've got rivers drying up now and that's going to continue we've got temperatures at 45 46 degrees there's going to be temperatures at 50 degrees that's where your air conditioning breaks down and you die so, we have a threat to human existence and the other really important thing to know about that is that um, there's an eminent scientist, um, Hans Schellenhuber, advisor to the European Union, set up the Potsdam Institute. He says that if we get to four degrees of warming, which at the moment could be around 2080, only one billion people, some people say half a billion, some people say none, some people say a few more, will survive. Now, just try for a moment to imagine what happens in the years between now and 2080. I won't be alive, but I think some of you will. As most people on Earth die. Like, there's a fair bit of bad stuff that's going to happen in that process, right? Mm -hmm. So, that's what Hans Schellenhuber is trying to tell us. When Roger Hallam or David Spratt repeat this on Facebook, and it's still actually rated as fake news. Fake news. They get the video taken down, right? Or a comment at the bottom. Fake news. No. It's what some of the most eminent scientists in the world are saying. And the other thing that they're saying is that we don't quite know where the point of no return for this is. We might actually be past it. Hopefully not. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be in a year. It might be in 10 years if we're really, really lucky. But we're heading for a point of no return. By that, what do you mean? Well, it's a cascade of, no of feedbacks, right? Yeah. So, again, scientists' dry language, right? Mm -hmm. You know, years and years ago they said that at some point forests turn from a sink for carbon dioxide to a source. Oh, what does that mean? That's pretty hard to imagine. What it means is that there's a certain point where forests, instead of sucking carbon dioxide out of the air for us and helping to balance out some of the shit we're putting up there, putting it in the ground for us, at that point they start to burn. And they're starting to put more carbon dioxide this year into the atmosphere than the whole of Australia's fossil fuel emissions, car emissions, everything we've burnt, the forests have put more up there. That's because we didn't really understand what they meant when at some point, they said at some point they turned from a sink to a source. So that's just one. We've got the permafrost melting, giving up methane. We've got things happening with the ocean currents slowing down. We have no idea how to reverse it. 
But what they're talking about is a cascade of tipping points mm -hmm. where one thing triggers another bad thing, triggers another bad thing, triggers another bad thing, and we cannot reverse it. Like, we've already got a hard job, right? When the forests are putting more carbon dioxide up there than the whole fossil fuel industry, we can stop the fossil fuel industry tomorrow, but if we can't stop our forests burning, we're going to end up with not much in the way of forests, like it's rainforest, right? Mm -hmm. It's ancient forests, a thousand-year-old trees that have been burning, that have never burnt before. They're not meant to burn. That's what we've done. So this is what I mean by emergency. And this is what I mean by existential threat. And so when I wrote, don't mention the emergency, one of the things I couldn't quite think how to message, like I knew we had to say it was an emergency, but I couldn't quite think how to explain a whole lot of people are going to die and make that sort of catchy. But, so that's why I was very excited when <laughs> I heard that there was this thing called Extinction Rebellion. Because it's sort of like climate emergency has got the problem and the solution in two words. You know, there's an emergency, let's declare an emergency, let's act like it's an emergency. But Extinction Rebellion just says it that one lot bit punchier, mm -hmm. which is that we, along with all the rest of the natural world, are risking extinction right now. We're at the point of no return. Politics, as usual, has failed us. Economics, as usual, is obviously and utterly, certainly, completely broken. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. You can't just keep pillaging the Earth. And we have to keep on doing these things like building sustainable businesses, lobbying politicians, going to protests. But we are out of time. And the only way we're going to solve this now is if as many of you as possible come and join the rebellion because we have to actually do massive disruptive civil disobedience to influence governments, to pressure governments, to reclaim power over governments or we are just not going to get there in time. So, long answer. Fantastic, yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! Um, so I really only had one question because I knew that you would have heaps to say um, and that was what will move people to action to help make concrete changes other than, yeah, so because, yeah. yeah no, that's a good question, I yeah. like that one okay, too. Good. Um, <laughs> well, in Extinction Rebellion we say tell the truth and act as though the truth is real mm. and I think for a number of years, you know, we've been, climate movement's been trying to tell the truth, say it is an emergency, right? But if it's an emergency, what do you do? You launch a petition? No. You, what, what, do I say? What, what you have to do really is get serious. You have to show that you're serious. And the amazing thing about Extinction Rebellion, the sort of really moving thing, really sad thing, is you know, I, one of the things I do is Extinction Rebellion introductory talks. And in the audience will be a whole crowd of young people sitting there saying, we have been in despair. We have known that climate catastrophe was coming since we were at primary school. We have given up on ordinary politics. We have given up on ordinary campaigning. But now Extinction's Rebellion, Extinction Rebellion is here. Um, just tell us what to do. We're prepared to leave our jobs, leave our careers, leave our studies, work for nothing, full time, trying to preserve a livable planet for our future, for us and for future generations. Mm. And tell the truth. You've got to tell the truth. It really is that bad. I've literally been at scientific conferences where the scientists are discussing amongst themselves how they're panicking. And yet from the podium, when I said, should we tell people it's a climate emergency then? They've gone, oh, no, 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 F fear doesn't work. There has never been emergency action where you didn't tell people it was an emergency. 
Truth. I agree. <laughs> Fantastic. That might be a moment that we, we switch out. Can I have a round of applause for Yandel? Thank you. I think one of the most amazing things that the Extinction Rebellion intro talk does is it, it dispels the myth that you can somehow disengage and go and just buy your bolt hole out in the Tasmanian forest and grow your own veggies. It's like it's, it involves all of us. There's no escaping it. Um, so <laughs> thank you for laying down the cold, hard, hard and terrifying truth. And can I welcome up to the stage our next interviewee, Neil Morris. had the excellent opportunity to work with Neil many years back on Yoda Yoda Country, so I'm absolutely stoked to see you on the panel today. And I'll throw over to Jane to interview you. Well, thank you. And I feel it's a great privilege to be having a chance to interview you. Um, Neil is a Yoda Yoda poet, an independent musician, radio host on a most excellent um, 3RRR show, still here, and a community activist for First Nations people. Um, oops, is there anything else you'd like to say to introduce yourself first? Okay. Um, okay, so look, I've been raving on about my own view about how to explain how serious things are, but I know that um, the, words, the word emergency can often not go down that well with First Nations people, given the context. Do you have any advice about how to convey the utter seriousness of the situation? Um, in ways that resonate particularly with First Nation people. Adnangan Mulana Yambana Kulun Waka and Gatanili Oti Oti Yir. I want to pay respect to the Kulun Nation's land that we are on. Firstly, I acknowledge their ancestors, I acknowledge their a continued occupation or attempted continued occupation of their lands. Um, that in itself has become a ridiculous challenge in our so-called contemporary society. So I do give my acknowledgement, my love and my gratitude to uh, just actually be here. That's, that's not something that's a free passage even for me as an Indigenous person to be able to do uh, basically on my own accord. So I really want to acknowledge that firstly, uh, what a gift that is every single day. We are, uh, as you've stated multiple times through uh, your interview as well, we are in a state of emergency and as First Nations peoples, of course, uh, we know that very well. We've been in a state of emergency since 1788 and beyond since colonisation began to impact on this land which is not called Australia, which is a beautiful land of thousands of indigenous peoples and ways and laws that are still relevant to the now. But First Nations people have been under siege. That siege has never relented, not once. There are no treaties signed anywhere upon this whole land. And even what is a treaty, even if we had that? Indigenous sovereignty is not enacted, it's not understood, it's not supported. And so our people die. Our people are dying every day at the hands of this illegal construct which is called Australia. And so here we are with 
the emergency manifest in the summer of 2019 and 20 upon the Western clock. We have these fires devastating the land right across the eastern line of this land, right across the sacred song lines of so many people, including my peoples, the Yorta Yorta, that song line that connects up the east coast, connects my people to all of the communities that have been affected by the fires. Indigenous people have died during those fires, not just because of the impacts of the fires. Indigenous people have committed suicide because they have been displaced, because they are depressed, because they are at the bottom of the rung and they are feeling the pain of this emergency as we have since 1788. So what I really want to make a point of in this is the community responsibility that we all have and certainly as First Nations people that we have. As I started with, I'm a Yorta Yorta person, I'm connected to the Kulin Nation through the Jar Jar Warang, but I'm a guest on this particular part of this country. What right do I have to carry out a life in this part of country? What is that particular life that I'm living uh, impacting on and how is that linked back to community responsibility within this emergency of colonization and colonial life that we are living within? Who guides the decisions that I make? Again and again, we talk about it um, as First Nations peoples, we have immense community responsibility. We have immense responsibility to the landscape, to our totems, and needless to say, how many of those have been lost in these fires? That's a whole other conversation in of itself. So there's a responsibility to survival that we have as First Nations people. There's a responsibility to make decisions every single day that are about eternal survival in this land. It's not about my life. It's not just about my family's life. It's about what are the generations to come going to have upon this whole landscape. I think about that stuff every single day, not because it's a choice, but because it's a responsibility as a First Nations person of this land, every single breath that I take and when I breathe out, there's an element of that responsibility in a feedback loop coming back to me when I take that breath in, which is a gift, asking me what am I doing as responsibility back to my people, my community, which includes the plants, it includes the insects, it includes everything. And so for me, I think um, as a collective society now living upon this land for the past uh, 230 plus years, some people more recent, in a population of 25 million people, we need to think about where do we locate ourselves within community responsibility mm. and narrow that right down to the very footsteps that we take each day. And we need to acknowledge that we're on Indigenous land where there's been custodianship for 60,000 plus years that took care of this place in a manner which was perfect. The landscape was in perfect condition prior to colonization getting here. 
and we have so many things we can do to um, to counteract the fact that it's not perfect anymore. All hope is not lost, and I love that. In spite of you know the the really intense things that you spoke about, maybe we we haven't crossed that threshold yet. Well, I certainly hope not. And one of the really encouraging things I've heard is from David Ma, who worked with Peter Andrews, the regenerative agriculture guy. And one of the things he points out is that in pre-colonial times, when First Nations people were looking after the land, the rivers and creeks were mainly a chain of ponds and there were a whole lot of swamps. Um, they weren't these, you know, canals with the water and the soil racing down to the sea. Um, so when there was a flood, you know, the, the soil that was in the water spread out over the land instead of rushing out. And also the swamps acted like a plug to keep the moisture in the soil and cool it, cool the land, hydrate the land and allow vegetation to grow. Apparently, with colonialisation, we actually removed 96% of those swamps, like in a very short time. Um, so I'm wondering if you would like to talk some more about like how traditional custodianship could restore the land via water or via other tra traditional practices. Yeah, there's, there's so many different ways and um, as Atlanta touched on earlier, we've, we've worked together in the past in terms of looking at reinstating some of those practices up on Yorta Yorta country in terms of, um, you know, practices to reinstate indigenous uh, waterways. So Yorta Yorta country, for those who aren't aware, it's, um, it's largely floodplain country. So um, if you drive through there in this day and age, it appears a very barren um, agricultural landscape which is is amazing the transformation that can take place but but certainly there's still opportunity to um reconfigure the landscape and i was listening to stuart earlier and thinking about um you know planning urban planning and and all of those things and, and then it was mentioned by somebody else about well the urban is not just the cities it's it's everywhere um well to provide a different perspective to that country is everywhere where we are right now the most deepest truth of where we are is that it's country it's sacred indigenous land still where we're sitting right now is a sacred indigenous site for the local custodians of this particular land and half the time myself included i don't necessarily always know where it is I am on the landscape because of this facade that is now um, glazed upon that we're now here forced to look at and inhabit. So those reframings and those restructures, I have a, a large belief that that can occur across the whole landscape. And where we are as people who largely, I'm assuming, live in this metropolis of so-called Melbourne, we do have an opportunity to bring those things right into the places where they're most visible and we can do it in very powerful ways. Of course, there's the question around resources. What is the resource used to restructure? That's obviously one of the most challenging things that faces us right now is, does it take more resources to restructure than it actually takes to just maybe go down and go along with what's already there? I found that a really interesting point in the first speaker today. But um, there's so much we can do, and we can do it on every front. And within the fires itself, um, there were homes, I'm not sure if everybody's seen that, but 
there was an indigenous um, cultural burn through a part of landscape just this season that meant that somebody's home got saved. Just one season of indigenous burning over 200 years or so of colonial burning. So the power speaks for itself and that gives me immense faith that although we could be past the tip of the iceberg already of going past that threshold, we have an opportunity to do things that can at least maximise the quality of life for everybody moving forward. That is a beautiful point. Round of applause for Neil Morris. Thank you. <laughs> I hate this job of cutting off beautiful conversations, but thank you so much to Jane for her excellent contributions. <sighs> wow, this is incredible. Uh, please make welcome to the stage, Lyndon Ashcroft. Welcome, Lyndon. Now, who wants to introduce Lyndon? Yeah. I want to ask or comment something that I read in your bio earlier, and it's a pleasure to connect with you. And it's a pleasure to know that you grew up on Yorta Yorta country. What a beautiful place to grow up. Indeed. I say with all my biases here <laughs> with me. How did it feel for you growing up on Yorta Yorta country and what, uh, in your experience growing up, led you to decide to become uh, a scientist and to work specifically in the spaces around uh, climate and those matters? And please do introduce yourself as well um, as exploring that question, okay, if you may. Great. Thank you, Neil. And just like Jane, I would also like to say it's a real honour to speak with you today. As you said, I grew up on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people a couple of hours north of here. So I grew up in a small town where, I mean, just like all of us, the sky is a big part of what we do and what we see every day. And it, you know, it naturally shaped, I think, the person that I became. And actually, when I was younger, I was always going to be a poet. Um, and then in year nine, I discovered maths, and so I became a scientist instead. And now I work at the University of Melbourne, where I get to do both of those things. I work as a climate researcher and also a science communication lecturer, where I teach other scientists how to share their work and how to share their passion. But my field is in, in climate history, um, European climate history. I work with Western climate history. Um, the indigenous climate knowledge and the generational understanding of our land and how it works is something that the more I work in this space, the more I realise it's just not present in Western science. There is so much indigenous science out there in other fields that are slowly coming out. There's a lot of indigenous astronomy. There's lots of different Western fields where indigenous science is being more appreciated. But we have a long way to go, I think, in the climate science space. But uh, I work in the world of before the Bureau of Meteorology, but after colonisation. So that space where things were written in sepia and um, actually people who don't accept the science of climate change are quite interested in my work because they think I might be able to uncover a single heat wave or a single thermometer that can disprove hundreds and thousands of papers and hundreds and thousands of different sources. If you don't believe thermometers, maybe you believe glaciers. If you don't believe glaciers, maybe you believe mosquitoes. Maybe you believe geckos. Maybe you believe malaria. Maybe you believe trees. Maybe you believe something else. But no, that one thermometer, that's going to change everything. Uh, but I work with those, those pieces of information because I think... 
I think those stories are interesting. I think those stories are important. Uh, and that's a way to connect people with the science, um, people who might not otherwise be connected, uh, people who maybe feel that some of the conversations don't include them. I mean, lots of other conversations include them. I'm talking more about older regional members of, of society who might think that uh, this sort of a discussion is not for them, but thinking about, you know, a grazier in the 1800s who had a thermometer out in his farm, that's a story that they can connect to and then that might in turn connect them with the climate conversation and the climate emergency. And so in, in speaking on that, uh, you've touched on something which I've discovered is a large part of your work, which is um, critically important, which is in terms of how is the science of climate change or, or global warming conveyed to people and obviously some people might eventually get there, some people might not. But what are you seeing as the key things that you're able to do as a scientist to communicate uh, your learnings to, to populations at the moment? And, and has there been a very particular um, instance that you've found that's had a, a really um, strong impact on potentially uh, a, a demographic group within uh, society that maybe has been a hard group to really uh, penetrate in terms of raising their awareness or just raising their uh, sense of urgency? That's such an interesting question and I've really enjoyed hearing different people's opinions on the kind of stories that they think connect with people because stories are so important. It's how we process information, it's how we connect to each other, it's how we learn, it's how we grow. How many anecdotes have we heard in the last hour and a half? You know, as a scientist I'm like, where's the statistical significance in that anecdote? But you'll remember that, right? More than you'd remember a graph. And so Extinction Rebellion is connecting a lot of people as an, and engaging and empowering huge sections of the community. But we also have to acknowledge, and I think Atlanta um, touched on this at the start, that that terminology, those stories, don't connect to everyone. You know, those conversations aren't for everyone. Climate crisis might connect to some people, but not everyone. And so what we need to do is have a million conversations, have lots of different conversations, and sometimes recognise that we're not even the people to have those conversations, you know. Uh, you think you meant asked whether I had a specific situation, and last week I was up in New England, up in Armadale. This is Barnaby Joyce's electorate. 85% uh, of people voted for Barnaby Joyce up there. And they've just had their driest year since records began there in 1860. It was so dry, so dry, and people were so distraught. Luckily for me, there had been some rain before I arrived. There was a, a thin layer of green, otherwise I probably would have been lynched. But um, the conversation that I had with those people there, um, I made sure to keep it very local. You know, you, you want to make sure that you keep it very relevant to the people who you're talking to. Um, Four degrees means a lot to people who understand and, and look at the global picture, but you think, oh, geez, four degrees warmer. That sounds pretty nice, you know. But if you say to someone, oh, normally you get two days above 40 degrees and last year you had 40 days above 40 degrees, that's, that's not exactly what the numbers are, but it was a very dramatic graph that I showed them and that really connected to people. So taking the time to build up a relationship with that community and then telling a story that is relevant for that community whether or not that converts into action or converts into changed minds or, or more conversations, that I don't know. Um, 
But I think it's something that all scientists probably need to explore. All of us maybe need to explore. Um, that sounds like enormous work. It, it sounds like um, it's not work that's going to necessarily be achieved in a short period of time. And so you, you've mentioned uh, using graphs and you use a lot of data in your work and, and particularly uh, weather um, modeling data as well. Is there a particular piece of, of data that um, you've been using quite a bit frequently and seen that you've had large impacts with and or are there trends in, in data usage that you think will have a big impact in the next couple of years in the midst of I'm going to use the word this emergency that we are in. Data really is the language of for some, but not for everyone. I mean, there are so many terrifying graphs that exist online, looking at not just what is projected into the future, but what we're seeing already, particularly last year. It was our hottest year on record for Australia. Not by a little bit. Normally when Australia breaks a record, we break it by a tiny bit because you have to average values over the whole country. We broke it by a lot. And it was our driest year on record as well. And I've shown that graph to a few people and you have to really like squint to see the rainfall in 2019 on the, on the bar chart that the Bureau of Meteorology produced because it was so dry. But there's so, so many of those graphs that exist out there, depending on what you're looking at, depending on what you're interested in. But sadly, and it breaks my heart as someone who works with numbers and, and understands the world through numbers, that's not enough. That's not enough anymore. If it was, we wouldn't be having this conversation um, as graphs are only part of the story. And so we need to incorporate that with the understanding of what people value and what people believe and what people think is important. We might pause there. Uh, that was beautifully articulated. And thank you, Neil, for joining us and leave the podium. You. Okay, our next interviewee is Alec Reed. If you could come on up. There you are. Yeah, I, as Alec comes up, I think you're right. Like each of us, um, different information will get through to different people and there's some great work being done by Deakin in their climate crisis communication unit. What does two degrees warmer look like? And they show a graph being like, okay, well, let's show what New York looked like uh, when it was two degrees cooler and the entire city would be under a mile of ice. So just trying to communicate what an average temperature actually means. But enough of that. Welcome, Alec. Hi, Alec. Um, I'm going to try to introduce you and then if I get anything wrong, you just tell me, okay. So Alec is a producer and an artist uh, and they also, with the co-founder of the Pacific Art Collective, New Wayfinders. Um, as I understand it, you work a lot with art that is focused about empowerment, decentralizing whiteness and empowering communities and people. That's a really great message and a really positive thing to hear. And I'm wondering why you chose empowerment as something to kind of centralize your, your focus there. Nisambula Vinaka, Talofa Lava, Malolele. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that we also are having this conversation on uh, stolen land, the land of the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Um, uh, I'm an uninvited guest here, um, and I'm sure a lot of us would also um, identify with that. Um, empowerment, I think, um, 
my focus on that is very much guided by my experiences growing up on this country, um, being born in uh, Lutruwita, um, so um, Mulanina country, which is Hobart, um, known today. Um, and so I think I was in a lot of spaces where I felt disempowered um, and I realized that there was a dominant narrative that was guiding my life and um, guiding the way that I related back to the world. And so uh, a lot of my focus is, is on community um, mobilization. Um, and the best way I know how to do that is through art and creativity. Um, and that guides a lot of um, a lot of our community, the, the multiple communities within who I work with, that guides the, our way of being. Um, we l carry our culture through dance and music, and weaving. Um, so many of our responses um, are, are guided artistically and the ways in which we relate to each other and relate out to the world. And so that's a lot of my focus. And I do find that that can be limited, but uh, I'm more focused on stories, as you were saying, and a lot of us have uh, a, a pinpointing a certain way of telling a story um, and trying to relate that back to the world. Um, and so that's my, the framework from which I, I work from. And so when I know you, you're an artist and you're also a producer, which uh, means that you get to work with lots of other different artists, when you're trying to find a story to share, what are the kind of things that you look for? There's a big question, I know. <laughs> um, I, I usually uh, work with contexts that relate to my own. So um, I found that the communities that I tend to work with in general, uh, Pacifica communities based here uh, and around Melbourne, um, we share um, connections to First Nations communities, um, African diaspora, um, a lot of it is, is focused on art because that's just how we relate to each other. Um, and so they t tend to be the people that I, I work with in, in my own freelance work. Um, I've started working recently in festivals and so it's broadening my scope and my approach with people and I think it's Although I work within those community contexts, my, um, my efforts are focused towards um, bridging um, and, and, and giving a sense of understanding between all of our complex experiences through the lens that I know. Um, that, no, that's, that's so important to hear that and so valuable. We often think, so in science communication, we th there's this old, outdated, but still somehow alive idea that if you just shove knowledge in people's faces, they'll understand it. But it's really getting to know each other's contexts and each other's uh, values and things that are important, that that's how you can really have that, that valuable interaction. So then coming to the science and coming to science and sort of the climate emergency then, this idea of, of working with different communities and um, connecting through art, what We've already had a bit of a discussion about it today, thinking about the power of that, the power of 
visual art and different types of art, what role, and I know it's an important one, but I'd be interested in your opinion on the role of that in helping us address the climate emergency. Yeah, I believe that um, art tends to be quite siloed in, in the, it's, it's seen to be a bourgeoisie like form. Uh, and I think there's a lot of limits around how, how it's enacted or how people can relate back to it. And so um, a lot of my focus within it, I volunteer with the Pacific Climate Warriors. Um, I'm, and using the approach of empowerment and cultural and um, uh, community mobilization, I'm interested in what messages we can or, or the platform and what messages we can push on to, to our own communities and, and to build a sense of understanding, but respond to the emergency. Um, but then also maybe bring a sense of truth to that. And um, a lot of my work is based on the fact that I come from a people who are on the front lines of the climate emergency. Of course. Um, and there's whole villages that have been like eradicated by um, you know, rising sea levels. Mm. Um, uh, I have Kiribati heritage through my dad's side and the reality for them is that, you know, I don't think they have more than a decade before, you know. Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm more focused on climate justice and I believe there's so many conversations to fold into that. There's um, sovereignty and what role that plays in caring for the land and for recognizing our, our relation to land and how we are part of the land. Um, that's a lot of my cultural understanding. Um, there's tied into that like abolition. There's like a need for anti-capitalist uprising. Um, all of these are interlinked and there's so many conversations that each of us are honed into and in a way, like you were saying, there's because there's so many conversations, it's so hard to um, link together and I feel like these sorts of platforms are important in connecting us with the, own, the, the ideas that we bring mm -hmm. individually and mobilising together and it's heartening to see movements like Extinction Rebellion. I think what my focus is in response to that is trying to implant a sense of truth and a sense of just, I guess, sharpening the, the ways that we can relate to each other and understand how this movement affects everyone, but even on an individual level. And have you seen that sharpening uh, and that kind of rejigged focus increasing in the last few years in your your career in your own work and the I mean you the work that you are connected with as well do you feel you know maybe it's just the bourgeois circles I work in but a lot of art that I see now has a climate connection in it you know there's nothing that climate change doesn't touch do you feel like that is becoming increasingly apparent in your area yeah it's it's a huge focus in the areas and the circles that I work with, perhaps their bubbles. Um, but I like to think that the support for it or the, at least the engagement with climate change or however you would term it, um, 
it's so present and so many people are thinking or talking about it, whether it's against or for, and I really, I, I, I definitely agree with your opening statement of being like, it's too late to, to change it. And, and what I'm interested, uh, it's too late to change minds. And what I'm interested in is, is if we can't change minds, how is it that we can place the most affected or the most important narratives forward in that movement? Um, rather than leaving communities behind who would be, you know, on the margins and the m disproportionately affected. Yes. That is a really good comment, which I think we might end that interview there. Round of applause for Lyndon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank, just leave it on the seat, I reckon. Um, and thank you, Alec. That was, that was powerful. Hello. Okay, brilliant. Uh, I invite our next panellist, uh, Dr. Mittul Var... I'm not going to say your last name because I'll bugger it up. Please welcome to the stage, Mittul. So, Dr. Mittul Van Havati? Yes. Did Pleasure much better. <laughs> um, I will uh, ask if you would like to briefly introduce yourself and the work that you do. I have read your bio and I've read into the amazing things that you do and I have a lot of, no, I have a few questions here. I'm gonna try and limit it because this will be a long conversation. Please. Thanks, Alec. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Mithul Vahanbati. I originally come from India. Um, I was trained as an architect and uh, was interested in how architecture can be uh, built in uh, to coexist with nature. So I came here to do sustainable development masters. That sort of changed me forever, and this was 20 years ago. Um, practiced in architecture for uh, almost seven years as sustainability consultant, but there was still something not right. I just didn't feel aligned. I felt there was a lot of awareness, a lot of talk, not much doing. Um, that led me into the social side of design and construction. My husband and I, we also run a social enterprise called Giant Grass, where we build communities through co-design and co-building. So this co-aspect has stuck with me throughout. And now I combine my ecological understanding, social understanding, and have uh, have delved, uh, have jumped on towards the deeper end of disaster recovery and how the process of uh, reconstruct reconstructing houses and settlements can actually be uh, done in a way that reorients our development pathway towards a socio-ecologically just um, future and that can be termed as resilience concept, um, which is systems-based, but work at uh, grassroots community level. Love it. <laughs> um, so you speak to um, co-production in, in the work that you do. I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by co-production and uh, give us some examples of structures and processes you use to instigate this approach. So this co-production approach, um, organically happened for the first time when I was in India. I was stationed uh, at, uh, at a tribal village uh, as a designer who would teach uh, tribal people, uh, that is indigenous people in India, design. And they all were bamboo craftsmen and women. 
uh, but they couldn't make a living. So they were moving to uh, urban areas, again, forming part of slums. So the idea was that can we use their existing skills and designs to come up with something that has market value. And when I went in, I thought, yeah, I'm the expert. Uh, you know how naive you are when you are just graduated. Um, but then I, I learned that I absolutely know nothing. I just have design skills, but they have amazing experience. And that was like a, a really good experience. And since then, uh, that was the most satisfying work I've done. But now I'm involved in working with um, uh, rural communities in Victoria, uh, Tarnagala community um, near Bendigo, and we co-produced their resilience action plan. They live right on the edge of the bush, so during summers when we all go for holidays, they stay home because fire is a threat. There is no water, so uh, if fires are close to them, they can't stop it. Um, and I didn't go in as an expert. I said, I know the process, but you know your town, and you know what resilience means for you. Let's define it together. Um, let's develop actions together. And now it's coming to an end. But I'm also involved in the Pacific, in Solomon Island. And we have worked together on a different project. Um, but again, there it's the same approach, but adopting nature-based solutions to urbanization, uh, natural hazards, and climate crisis. Climate change, <laughs> not crisis. Um, so, yeah, speaking to your experiences in regional Victoria and on, in Honiara on Solomon Islands, um, the capital, um, what, are your, what are the differences in co-production and what are the similarities when you are engaging with two very different cultures or maybe approaches or...? So... Um, in all these three contexts, I think the local community had amazing amount of dignity. And they came forward saying that actually, uh, initially they appeared as if they don't know much, uh, because we, we come in out as outsiders using big terms. Um, and they're like, we don't even know what resilience means. And uh, so we just needed a lot of icebreakers. And then suddenly it appeared that across all these three places, India, Honiara, and uh, Australia, they said, we knew this all along. We just were not using that bloody term. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it's so rewarding when they own up. They said that, oh, you, j you helped us with the process, but we were doing that all along. We knew it all along. But now we can uh, proudly and um, confidently say that, yes, we have a resilience plan. We can go to funding bodies and say, look, we have gone through this process. Now please fund this so we can be, um, we can look out for each other, um, which we were nervous whether we can do or not. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they no, do need some hand-holding support um, to just uh, to connect with the scientific evidence, to connect with government, to connect with researchers, come up with a plan. But I think uh, they are just amazingly uh, smart <laughs> and uh, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so speaking to working between community and um, bureaucracies, local governments, funding bodies, um, what has been um, some 
uh, sorry, how receptive have local bureaucratic structures been to the work that you do? Not very good. <laughs> um, so, uh, look, I feel that the support has been very short-term and short-sighted. Um, um, without giving many examples, but uh, there has been the Victorian Climate Change Innovation Fund, which funds you once, but there, there is a requirement that there has to be a researcher involved and a major research component. So majority of money goes to the researcher, and that's me, yeah, not to the community. And I've been helping the community to get funding to actually implement those actions, and there's barely any. So government is saying, oh, we can fund research, and we have already funded you. So, but I'm like, until these actions are put in place, they are not resilient. You can't say resilience equals self-reliance. It goes, uh, there, there is a collaboration required, there is that long-term view required, which is absolutely missing. And no organization, uh, we have written almost three grant applications together, and we have failed at getting funding for the community to implement some of those actions. Mm -hmm. So it's very short-sighted. Mm -hmm. So perhaps um, a bit of, or a lot of your work by the sounds of things is focused around succession planning. What, like, what sort of role does that play in your focus now after all of these experiences? So um, I'm suggesting we need to bring diverse views, diverse stories come together. Look at the elephant as a whole and not parts. And you gave example at the start, Alanta. Um, and to do that, um, we need some support from government to establish such uh, platforms where we can debate, we can respectfully listen to everyone's ideas and actually come up with something that makes sense to all of them. Um, and my research mainly focused on long-term outcomes. What actually works at long-term outcomes? This is one of the solution to create that platform. Community mobilization can happen through that. Um, and there are a few others which I won't go into, but yeah, long-term thinking and um, bringing diverse views together. That was excellent. Thank you so much. And um, we might thank both of our interviewers here. Thank you, Alec. That was an excellent interview. <laughs> now, to be interviewed by Mitchell, uh, we'll have Jiri Lev join us. Where are you, Jiri? There we are. And it's been a pleasure working with Mitchell over the years as well. And it's it is this constant thing about the um, the assumption that a university education gives you that you somehow know more than communities who've been uh, living in an environment and, and working with those conditions for generations. Uh, so I don't know how we overcome that sort of inbuilt elitist kind of concept that paying a, a university gives you to think that you somehow know all the answers. <laughs> talk for next time or you want me to answer now? <laughs> <laughs> An ongoing thought, I think. Yeah. I'll throw over to you. Hi, Ayuri, oh. how are you? <laughs> um, I have read your bio and it's impressive how you are sort of creating activism within architecture industry uh, while you're having your own practice. Do you want to um, introduce yourself to the panel? Uh, yeah, audience? so I guess I would call myself, probably in some grandiose terms, an emerging architect. <laughs> and um, 
What I do, I guess, is my own little way of, um, of pulling my weight in some sense, at least to some extent. Uh, it's very much a grassroots, I guess, effort. So wherever I see a little space, I can do something meaningful. And it can be as little as letting so or having someone across the road, or it can be a little bit more organized or more, more significant. Or I guess when you do these things, as most of you would probably know, uh, people tend to cotton on and, and uh, momentum tends to, tends to happen. So you're mentioning that perhaps um, it may be something somewhat difficult to, to practice and have a job and at the same time be an activist. Well, I don't really consider myself an activist. I guess um, it's really very effortless when you're in the right place and do the right thing. People really listen and they're kind of hungry to do their own little bit. And I guess that's something that um, is quite obvious with this last thing, the, the Architects Assist initiative, where all I really did was create a very simple website, which initially took me perhaps hours, if not minutes, <laughs> right? But, but, but there was thousands of people, perhaps millions, but thousands in architecture, willing for their little way to say, I'm here, I'm willing to help, I'm looking for uh, an opportunity to, to sort of, um, yeah, do something. And uh, yeah, so these things just happen themselves, I guess. So following on that uh, mm. last note, uh, what are the plans with Architect Assist? So Alec, I'm sorry. Uh, Yuri has uh, started this uh, platform where architects who want to assist bushfire-affected people um, have joined to give free services to, to the people. And there are, what, 100 architects already? Well, it's a little bit more than that. But I guess the numbers aren't a significant thing here. Yeah. I mean, probably any architect would be there if they knew about it. But it basically says, like, Pretty much anyone in architecture is there for a good reason, right? Most most of us are idealists, as are, as are you. Um, and so everyone's pretty much a pro bono architect. Everyone wants to do something something good for the world, right? That's why we're in it. We're not there for the money, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so we have 530 practices, which means potentially thousands of people on board offering their services pro bono. Uh, and we have significant number of students, probably 1,500 now, who are just waiting for an opportunity to do something, which uh, could be as something as um, um, rudimentary as just uh, traveling somewhere to a site and uh, helping someone uh, build something. Um, it could be some more involved design, design work in collaboration with registered architects. So I'm going to be devil's advocate here. Um, after 2009, many architects assisted uh, bushfire-affected communities, developed designs for their homes, but there are there's research that suggests that less than 50% actually could go ahead and build those homes. Um, and th the other side of it, is, so one that's one side. The other side is the technical aspects of design. Is there clarity on that? So this is a twofold question. Um, it's it's in a way barrier. How do you think, uh, or do you have plans of overcoming them? Well, I guess the first response of a professional would be to, and it's kind of natural way of thinking, is to instigate some kind of large-scale change. So you would imagine to write a manual, a book, or a design make, to make available to, to sort of, you know, be widespread and make, uh, make a big change in the community or the country. Um, but really what, what everything, I think all the activism and everything that has been mentioned here 
anything that's successful is essentially coming down to individual action. It's always, you know, the, what we do every day, you know, how you get up. Um, someone mentioned uh, having cold showers today. Um, things like that. So I guess, um, so I guess what, what, what makes this um, successful and attractive is that individual people, bushfire victims, can uh, sort of um, couple up with, uh, with uh, experienced professionals. And I guess initially they will receive some kind of even just um, encouragement because a lot of people come to us and they have a significant amount of money oftentimes, you know, out of their insurance, but they feel desperate because all they hear is, you know, houses are this expensive now and if I want my seven rooms back, it's going to cost this much, you know. So, so oftentimes people who should not be desperate really feel um, that se the sense of, you know, I'm a victim, I'm... A, I'm really badly hit, and so they just need to be maybe encouraged initially, like, look, uh, what you have, of course, means perhaps you will not be able to rebuild exactly what you did before, maybe, and maybe you shouldn't have, shouldn't either, because perhaps it's not something that, that is resilient, that makes sense in that place, but it definitely gives you an opportunity to have a, an amazing new start, and, uh, and say, take in your site in a completely different, look at your site at a completely different angle, and, um, I mean, the, the end results are, of course, superior. Um, does that answer? Yeah. David? Yeah. Do you want to leave us with the last um, comment on what change do you expect to see? Huh. Well, uh, I guess my thinking about and this discussion today, like, um, is that uh, I keep hearing all this, like, let's change people's minds and uh, let, let's change the politics, let's have some political impact, uh, get rid of capitalism, all this stuff. I really believe in that. That essentially. The individual individuals guide the politicians uh, in a in democratic system. Of course, if we force the individuals, or if we uh, if we make them feel like they're being they're being, they're, they're being blamed or um, they're doing something wrong, people respond in def defensively, right? And I think pretty much anyone I speak today, and we we call them climate deniers, climate change deniers, commonly, but I think they're more scared and they don't want to admit what's happening and face it, right? And uh, and I guess it's a natural response, sort of, to, to, to deny. It's not that they, they don't believe in it. It's just um, they're listening for any, anyone who tells them it's actually not that bad. You know, you can, you know, relax. Or this, it's happened before. And people are responsive to this. So I guess the, the way to deal with the climate change and, uh, and other environmental issues, because it's not just that, is uh, like we have dealt with uh, smoking or other things that took originally really good marketing, um, powerful presentation of the consequences of, of continuation of a certain behavior or and, and then essentially that essentially led people to making the individual choices. Some people slow down, some people quit smoking and, and it was very successful. The comparison with uh, the CFC guess is, I guess is, is, is very different in nature because there were alternatives available and it was literally just a you know, fairly easy fix, very that could have been done top down, but I think the, the, the change that we need to see is bottom up, definitely. So, so what exact change through the marketing that you are seeking? Well, I guess uh, people don't really, and maybe are sick of in some sense, which is what I hear uh, often, uh, of be being this uh, sort of presented with the, the graphs, the scientific information, the, the numbers. Like, I think what they need to see, okay, well, if you don't do anything, Ten years from now, it's going to be exactly like this in your place, right? So you can present them, like it was, it was mentioned here, uh, New York, you know, um, covered in ice. So, 
So what's, 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 what's exactly going to happen to you, to your kids, and so on? Another thing is that we as humans, of course, are conditioned to first look after ourselves, so we're constantly challenged with our own selfishness, which is inherent. And a lot of our action is motivated, of course, by fear, and hopefully sometimes by some sense of you know, hope or love or generosity. But um, the first reaction is usually motivated by fear. So if you, know, if, if you attack someone, either with a powerful rhetoric or even a guilt trip, people tend to enclose and not act or avoid, avoid the truth, really. Like it's, it's a psychology issue, and I think the, the answer to, to, um, to what should we do would be, would be good marketing. Like, uh, not really, because we have the system, democratic system, that enables us to control the politicians, and they will not do any changes for us, because this is not, you know, this is not totalitarianism. So, yeah. so they can't say, this is how it's going to be, because they're going to face the consequences next election so it's so I hear, them, what we I want hear to see. compassionate marketing yeah <laughs> I think so yeah. it has to be well marketed <laughs> it has to be sold and it has to be positive reinforcement and encouragement right. and not uh, not not threats not you know that ties in with scientific communication uh, as well thank you Yuri oh, and thanks. thank you Mittal for excellent interview round of applause for Mittal Varanati I really like your point, Yuri, um, about the fear and um, there's a great case study by uh, Melinda Gates about uh, Coca-Cola, which sells six billion servings of its product a week, uh, the most sold product and one of the least needed products as well. And their, their key to success is aspirational marketing, localised aspirational marketing. How will this product help you achieve your goals of what you achieve? And maybe that's something that's missing from our conversation. Um, I'd like to welcome up to the stage Jess Wood. There you are. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is our first time meeting. Lovely. <laughs> Didn't identify you in the crowd. Yeah, I was a bit Sorry. late. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so you were heavily involved with uh, the, um, the Nightingale project mm -hmm. and and I guess continuing on what, what I just said about marketing and so on, you looking after the communications and mm -hmm. community engagement. Correct. Yeah. So, so I guess I'd love to hear your experience about or from working on the project and, and, uh, and the challenges you face, I guess, explaining to people what the benefits are and why they should mm. live like that. Mm, that's a good question. I think um, kind of like similar to what you're talking about in sort of going into those rural communities and sort of questioning whether people sort of do need the seven bedrooms and, you know, can they get back to living exactly how they already lived? I think Nightingale, from a communications perspective, works a lot on sort of cultural identity of Australia and Australian families. Um, so th that is a conversation that we are trying to have with people through sort of functioning prototypes about um, not just can you live with fewer bedrooms and no cars, um, and no air conditioning, but how is that actually beneficial and how can it kind of save you money and sort of make you more sort of um, financially robust into the future and then sort of, and that in turn can kind of like feedback into your sort of resilience and your role in the community and this kind of stuff. And I think sort of the best way to sort of prove that something works is to build a really good prototype generally. Yeah. And uh, how, how do you, because it seems, I mean, is it just my outsider's perception that um, the, the people who, who live and take part in these projects, mm -hmm. that they are already convert, convertees and you know, they know what they're doing. It's a very conscious act to, take, uh, to put your money, I guess, in a, 
mm. in um, and a sort of there's a great deal of self-restraint, isn't there as well in terms of like there's limited parking and mm-hmm. you have shared assets like such as laundries, correct? Correct. So there's yep. a certain self-restraint involved. How easy or difficult is it to talk to those untouched by these these notions and? Um, um, that's a really good question. I think to a, to a great deal, we're pretty aware that we operate within a, a bit of a bubble. So, you know, six out of eight projects are located in Brunswick, for example. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're pretty aware of that. But once again, I think it is through the prototype and showing people the prototype and also kind of explain that it's, you're not generally just sacrificing on the one hand, you're actually gaining a whole lot um, on the other hand. And I think, actually, we sort of don't give people enough credit for, b- for being able to recognise that those are good things as well. So we had like a VCAT objector come in through Nuttingale 1 last week and they left saying that this was the most sublime thing they'd ever seen and they were withdrawing their objection straight away. So it is about being able to demonstrate that in a really transparent, honest way um, yeah, and not promising anything that you can't deliver, I think. And what is the, I guess, your first-hand experience living like that? Because you've been living in one of these places mm-hmm. for years now, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and are you a city person? Have you always lived in a city? So I am. I've grown up a city person, but I've recently found a country connection. Um, my partner is a cattle farmer. Um, so I kind of um, operate my life from in these two radically different perspectives and have quite a view on this sort of divide between the two. So what's your honest sort of opinion as someone with all this knowledge and experience? Mm. What's your honest opinion on, or, or I guess, yeah, or a reflection on your life in, in, in this place? Like how do you sort of evaluate the, the benefits to you personally mm. and let's say the sacrifices that you had to make? Um, I would have to say that it's hard to remember the sacrifices now because in a completely transparent way it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience. Um, I think... I never really had a concept of what it meant to be in a community, to, be, to live as part of a community. And I think um, probably I thought that that was like a really rosy sort of uh, um, idyllic thing that didn't sort of apply to me. But in sort of coming into this more communal way of living, you sort of understand that community is not about everyone agreeing. It's actually about have, being able to have sort of robust discussions and ha- having some governance in place to help you move through those in order to extend the life of the community. Um, so, yeah, does that answer the question a bit? Yeah, I guess. Um, I've, <laughs> I've worked a bit with uh, co-housing and mm. co-housing communities and, and rural sort of commun- communal uh, title sort of um, situations. And uh, one thing I notice is that a lot of times people want to buy into these schemes, such as yours, or uh, the rural sort of version thereof. But it's only a sort of, they see it as, they, just view, it as a, they view it as a way of getting into the market at like sort of lesser cost but then they still want to have their, their own little world. And I mean, it's like a natural human, I guess, um, mm. I guess, uh, I guess um, uh, way, way of being. Um, so, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, sorry. Um, so, so how, would you, how would you, I guess, what's, what's your view? How could you present this, uh, this idea of, okay, let's have these blurred boundaries between your privacies. For example, as a strand in the suburbs, of course, everyone has seven rooms for everything, right? Cinema, sauna, everything. So there's no reason to come out of their house. How do you communicate this as a, I guess, communication specialist and marketer? How do you communicate this to people who are completely from the outside? 
how do I speak to people who are trying to get into my little project? Mm. Um, that's a pretty tough question. Uh, I think you just have to, again, only be honest. You can't, you can't promise them something they're not going to get, and you can't, um, you can't tell them that what they want is unreasonable. You can only sort of demonstrate a possible alternative. You, so it's not really we, we we try not to market in that sense because I think marketing, when it comes to such a massive decision such as like buying a house, um, you sort of overpromise and under under deliver. So, but I think on the other hand, Nightingale acknowledges that it's not for everyone. Um, it's not going to suit everyone's lifestyle, particularly if you have say a job where you need to drive every single day. That's not going to work for you. But I think as much as you know, we can kind of lament it in this space. That's where the free market is really great because we all have a choice. You know, you can choose to buy in or you can you cannot. And yeah. Beautiful. Well, that seems like a natural ending point of that discussion. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jess. And a round of applause for Yuri. Thank you so much. We are up to our final interviewee uh, for the relay. Well done, everyone. You're all still upright and looking uh, attentive, which is fantastic. Can I please welcome to the stage Karen Traeger Hemsworth? Welcome. Hi, thank you, everyone. <laughs> Hi, Karen. Hi. Uh, so I'm going to introduce you briefly. So Karen is a veterinarian and environmentalist. Um, she has the pretty amazing title of Sustainability Manager of the Melbourne Seafood Centre. Um, and she's also the founder of something called the Plastic Runner. Um, so you previously worked um, researching and tracing the effects of um, coral reef ble bleaching, is that right? Uh, we were actually tracking it. Um, I was working in the Great Bar Reef as a dive master. So mm -hmm. I got to go diving for free as a job wow. and get paid, which yep. was pretty cool. Um, and that was my first sort of experience face-to-face with mm. this concept, it was climate change. Um, so it's pretty sad to see these beautiful reefs just turning white and like everything dying around it. And that really sort of caught my attention, like, okay, this is something really real. It's not just mm. a theory. Mm. Um, and we were just taking photos, recording all that, and like analyzing which sort of species were still in those coral reefs. And yeah, I, I, I went back the next, like the year after, and I could see the effects like they were pretty bad mm. um i think i think one of the hardest things about sort of addressing climate change is the fact that it's its causes and effects are often very far apart sort of geographically and conceptually so um as someone who's a very terrestrial person um could you sort of explain what coral bleaching is and how someone very far up the stream or the food chain has an effect on it or can't have an effect on it or so things like the coral reefs, um, those are kind of like the places where our fishes and our food actually thrives, especially coral trout, and everyone likes local fish, especially Australian local fish, sustainable. Um, when, let's say, sea temperature like goes up or sediments or different types of factors, like environmental factors sort of get disturbed, um, coral reefs get stressed, so it's a living being. Um, that little piece of rock that you see in the ocean is not actually a rock, it's a living being. Um, so this living being um, releases an algae that produces like the energy for this organism to exist. And if that stress stays for like a long term, like a long period of time, 
what she causes is the coral reef stops and eventually dies. And that's what we're seeing at the moment when the coral reef goes white, it releases the algae that gives the color. And after a while, it gets colonized by different algae and it just dies and that's it. Goodbye, Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. So it, it's an issue of warming, sea, sea warming or? The things like naturally the coral reef usually goes through periods of like rise, like rise of like temperature, like normally it's you got the linear current goes in, like you get a bit of a peak, but that will last for a couple of days and it will just goes down mm. again. Um, and what we were saying before is that these environments were able to bounce back because mm. they had enough time to actually go back into a natural state and recover. And mm. that was a kind of a way of the same environment to control itself different species of coral present on these um, ecosystems. But right now we're seeing high temperatures for longer, mm. for longer time, um, every single year. Um, I was sort of lucky and kind of not that lucky to be on one of the first biggest bleaching events. That, that was in 2015 to 2016. Um, and it was like everywhere. Like the water was like 33 degrees. Um, Lizard Island had a pretty bad, I think they had like 36 degrees. Okay. And we were like, oh my God, like even the water, it's like jumping on a sauna mm. and it's cans. Wow. Um, and like for me, like I come from Chile, that is, it is quite chilly. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, like seeing this sort of environment really like, okay, it's tropical. I'm sort of used to tropical because I've been working around like different tropical places but this is not normal. Like, you're meant to jump in the water to get refreshed, not cooked. Um, so, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your role as the sustainability manager at the Melbourne Seafood Centre? Um, so, with the plastic runner, at the same time, I sort of find myself... What is the plastic runner, just in okay, case they haven't read about it? introduce everyone. Um, so, the plastic runner was a kind of my own little rebellion. Um, as an activist to show people how to create action and picking up waste while you're running. Um, so I'm an endurance runner and I go into this, like crazy events, like Respect. I do 100k sort of races. I actually got one next weekend. Um, and I started finding myself running and picking up all this rubbish. And it's like, oh my God, how people can be so inconsiderate with like environment, like this amazing place that we go running, national parks. and. I just had a bit of enough and I was like, that's it. I'm just taking action and I create this sort of social enterprise that we facilitate events every month and we create waste education and all that. So kind of like coming from fish, diving, then rubbish, connecting plastics and all these little environments. I was sort of trying to prevent that plastic to getting into a waterway and then jumping in the ocean. Um, how I got to the seafood market was kind of like a, a bit of a coincidence trying to find my little place. I'm still trying to find my little place in life, but I sort of chance to, okay, how we can kind of put things together in a formal way in a, one of the main seafood markets in Australia and make it more sustainable, especially around the waste. So we don't really see the sourcing and all that. That's a different body like the VFA and like seafood industry Victoria. But what we can see as a middleman of the trade is how much rubbish or how much plastic is going through the chain. Um, so that was okay. 
I need to change that or at least start making the change because polystyrene is one of the main issues for fish. As we all know, it's a massive um, kind of part of the microplastics in the ocean. And it's basically everywhere in the fishery industry. Like, you will get fish coming from New Zealand, Thailand, Indonesia, and it's all wrapped up in this little polystyrene box that it's virtually impossible to get recycled. Can I ask why that is? I mean, I, I see polystyrene around and I just can't believe it's still yeah. being used. But what, what is it about polystyrene that keeps it in the, in the well, system? The thing is, like, it's super cheap. It's lightweight, so you wouldn't get any, like, increase in costing in terms of fried, especially if you're exporting or importing fish. And it insulates really well, so you can make, put some ice there, preserve the quality of the fish, keep it fresh, and at the same time, it doesn't leak. So airlines, they're actually okay with that, so you don't get a smelly airplane. Basically that. And there's no real alternative that you see on the market? So that's where I'm going to. Um, so I was, like, trying for months and months, trying to sort of, like, research, okay, what can we do with, like, crappy material that no one actually wants to take and recycle it because it's dirty and smells and it's basically 60 to 70% of the general waste generated in market, um, which is shocking. Um, and after, like, running around in circles for months, I sort of find myself, okay, how if we just do maybe jump into the source. So why, like, not using the market as a hub where we can connect people from supplying point of view, maybe even buyers or different people in the industry to learn things about, like, sustainability? Um, so, so organizing an event now to network with the sustainable packaging company that they do have a replacement, um, which is actually the same price as polystyrene, and that's a selling point. And it's a cardboard box with a wool lining so the wool lining is actually compostable. And then the cardboard will pretty easy to recycle. And then you got a kind of like a soft plastic film inside. But that's way easier than recycling polystyrene. So it's more like now introducing them, like, hey, we found this really cool stuff. Why not just you and you talk together and see how you can go and do something fun? Um, so, yeah, that's how like, we're trying to maybe eventually decrease the waste that's actually going out in the ocean, that sort of way. That's awesome, and a very Australian solution there with wool as an insulator. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Did you have more questions, Jo? Uh, I actually did just have one more question. You kind of, this idea of pescatarianism, and you kind of hear a lot, yeah. I would go vegetarian, but I just can't give up seafood. Um, are you able to debunk some of the sustainable fishery myths for us? Is it... Can we eat seafood sustainably? Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell <so> us yes. <laughs> well, funny thing is that I'm actually vegan. Um, and the thing is, like, for me, fish and why I'm working in the fish markets and all that is because, like, fish, it is a more sustainable way to consume animal protein. Mm -hmm. So you've got different scientific things like the conversion rate of the protein. Like, you need less protein to feed it to produce the same sort of like muscle and all that so compared to a cow or a pig or a chicken at the same time they're basically carbon free so it's no emissions in terms of methane or anything like that okay. um so in that sort of way it is partially a more sustainable fishery sort of animal based industry um the issues is that right now yes we got like overfishing that's the main problem um, luckily, Australia is really sort of over-regulating commercial fishing in that sort of way. So they have been closing many of the fisheries 
down in, in the bay, Port Phillip Bay, um, which is like a whole sort of controversy around like, well, how do you want us to keep supplying if we don't have any access to the fishery? But yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a really complex topic about how you can over-regulate the industry, but you're still demanding fresh seafood. You don't want to get the cheap tilapia coming from Thailand that it's been, I don't know, coming from the Mekong or, yeah. Well, I think we might leave that conversation there. Can I have a round of applause for both Jess and for Karen? <laughs> we did it! Two and a half hours of discussion about the climate crisis. And you all stayed. Well done, everybody. Um, I'm going to do a super quick summary of some of the key things we've uh, covered today. Um, we kicked off with charity, uh, just got straight to it. Um, we need to dismantle capitalism. And uh, none of us are particularly 100% on board with that just yet. So we need to sort of take that conversation along. Stuart really focused on the way that our cities enable access and to get past the concept that a city is the, the centre five kilometres and looking at Melbourne actually stretching for the 100 k's out and, and those questions we need to answer. Um, we had an amazing conversation with both Jade and Chelsea about how you introduce sustainability within a system that just isn't sustainable. And really, and Jade introduced the idea of the circular economy and, and a hats off to all of the, the panelists we've seen who are bringing forward examples of ways that economies can actually work that change the status quo that are not just singular line from production to landfill. Um, we also saw the discussion around transparency and listing the real costs involved, the costs to the manufacturer, the costs to the workers, the costs of the transport, and how do we connect people back with the people producing the objects and the items that we purchase online. Um, Yandel really started to raise some of the issues around emotions and reactions to information about climate change and the issues affecting all of us in the climate crisis, um, which was really, I think, followed on with the discussions with Jane and, and Lyndon as well of graphs. Graphs don't necessarily cut through the heart. I think we saw a theme through, you know, what Neil talked about uh, and what Alec talked about um, around stories and how can we share these critical pieces of information, ways that are going to reach people. Um, because as Yuri pointed out, people shut down. We are scared of what is happening to our world. And if we, uh, and how do we break through that fear and actually reach people? Um, a very key point that Alec raised as well, who's, who's, Whose experiences do we bring to the forefront to inform action? And then that's bringing us up to both Jess and Karen. I think Jess, you know, with your questioning cultural identity of Australia and possibly uncoupling some of the materialism and the, the ways that we are used to living our life um, as part of our cultural identity and our value system. And I, I really loved the theme that came through both Yuri and, and Jess's discussions about honesty and transparency, not promising, you know, things are going to have to change if we're going to live more sustainable lives and, and not pretending that those things are not the way they are. Um, and some very interesting discussion about pescatarianism <laughs> and the, the challenges of market and, and supply. 
and demand and regulation, even in the face of protection and shutting down of fisheries. That didn't really capture the last two and a half hours. But if you did have comments or questions or reflections, um, please jump online. Uh, the hashtag we're using is hashtag mpavilion, which is a place that we can continue the discussion uh, with all of the amazing speakers. Can I have a round of applause for all of the incredible speakers who came today? And I'd love to also acknowledge the M curators uh, and all the hard work behind the scenes of bringing all of these fantastic people here today. M Pavilion will be here until the 22nd of March, is that right? Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so there are many, many more wonderful events uh, addressing critical issues facing all of us. Um, so please look at the program. I think there's in Indigenous astronomy is a, is a topic being covered tonight. Great, wonderful. Thank you so much for staying with us the last two and a half hours. You've been absolutely delightful to share this conversation with. I hope you have a wonderful Saturday and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.